Hello, Canada and the rest of the world, and welcome to the Netflix Podcast, the show where we review the movies available to stream on Netflix in Canada. I'm your host, Dylan Clark Moore, and today we're going to be talking about a ghost story. Before we get into things, I'd like to issue a few warnings about this episode. First of all, we are not going to be shy about spoilers, so if you haven't watched a ghost story yet, or you feel like spoilers are something that are going to ruin that movie for you, please go check it out first. It's pretty interesting. Also, we keep an explicit tag on the show in case of language that may not be suitable for all listeners and considering... The guest I have today, that's almost a guarantee. With that out of the way, let's get into things. Let's welcome back to the podcast for yet another discussion about some spooky shit. Welcome, Jeremy Hobbs. Thanks for having me, Dylan. Thank Glad you. Glad to be back. I'm very excited. I've actually lost track. How many of these is it for you? Four? I feel like this is my fifth. Fifth? I feel like. But it's hard to say because we did split that Jaws one into two different podcasts. That's so. true. Okay, so we've done Human Centipede, Jaws, uh, Christine, Christine, and... San Junipero, Black Mirror. San Junipero. This yeah, one? so this will be five. And then, uh, and then there was that kind of offshoot of the Jaws one uh, about, uh, you know, cinema in general oh, the, the, and celluloid. The bonus and, episode, yeah. Yeah, the bonus episode. Right, right on. <laughs> so, so it's 5.5. Five. five and a half, great. It's like a lesser Fellini kind of thing. Uh, Jeremy, just in case anybody hasn't had the pleasure of hearing your voice before, can you break the ice a little, let us know a little about you by telling us what you've been watching on Netflix recently? Sure. Um, as sort of a two-part answer, uh, usually I have like one thing. I usually tell you about the last thing that I watched, but... Um, uh, strangely enough, I just watched two Netflix series from Germany, uh, kind of back to back. So I think maybe I'll just drop drop some science on both of them. Um, <laughs> the first the first one I watched uh, was this uh, series called Dark. It was actually at TIFF last year. I think they played the first two episodes as a, as a screening, but I didn't get to see it. I heard a lot of good things about it. Uh, and it was compared to everything from like David Lynch to Stranger Things to like all all, all sorts of different. It's kind of like those things where like nobody really quite knows how to pinpoint it, so they just compare it to like everything that's weird. Yeah, like oh, it's kind of like Blue Velvet and Twin Peaks, but Donnie Darko, but also Stranger Things and you know John Carpenter and stuff. And it's like no one really knew quite how to pigeonhole it. And uh, once again, I just want to issue a spoiler warning because uh, one of the things that's cool about the series is that you don't really know exactly what kind of a series it is for probably till about episode three or four or something like that but essentially and once again if you haven't seen it uh, you might want to skip ahead or something like that but essentially it's like a time travel uh series you know it starts out like this really kind of dark sort of it's very heady and kind of intelligent the way it's done it's very still and quiet and very euro art filmish um it's kind of like all these denizens of this small town you know and kind of how they all relate to one another and there's like you know kids in high school and parents and grandparents and all this kind of stuff. there's this sort of weird like nuclear power plant and all this stuff and just it's kind of got that vibe of 
Twin Peaks or, or something that takes place in a small town with a lot of sort of strange characters and how they're interrelated. And there's like, uh, you know, these these dark things going on. Like uh, they keep finding the, the bodies of dead children and, and stuff like that, like in the woods and stuff like that. And there's this sort of creepy cave and all this stuff. But but uh, somewhere I think around the end of episode three or four or something, this bizarre thing happens and you're like, oh, okay, I get it now. It's like a it's like a time travel, like a, like a very dark back to the future kind of thing right because uh because once that starts once that plot element starts kicking in it, it starts to actually get really interesting because you have characters going into different times or characters from other times coming into that time there's this sort of uh i don't know what you'd call it like a tesseract or something there's this kind of uh the town sort of li- at the heart of this kind of disruption and like the space time continuum or whatever so people from one period get, can get sucked into an, another period and people from that period can get there's about three different periods kind of working in tandem with one another, but it takes pretty much the entire season before you uh, actually realize that. Um, but uh, but it's it's sort of I I can't say that I loved it because it, it it's very dense and very uh, it's not the kind of thing you want to put on at like three in the morning when you're super tired. It's very kind of talky and heady and dense, and it's it's hard to binge watch. I I, I binge watch a lot of things where I'll just watch an entire season of something in like you know two or three days. But this took me like probably like a month to get through because I could only really watch an episode every few days because it is so dense and uh, and sort of austere. But having said that, um, when I got to the end of it, I remember thinking like that's probably one of the most sort of adult and complex and kind of intelligent time travel stories I've seen because a lot of time travel movies and, and TV shows and stuff are kind of almost maybe a bit more geared toward kids or something like uh or not even that, but just stuff like Back to the Future where it's a little a little bit more lighthearted and kind of more like adventure kind of thing. And there, and there, there hasn't been too many time travel stories that were, were, were really kind of dense and, and sort of already, you know, the, the one that comes to mind is Primer. Um, the Shane Carruth movie Primer is actually quite dense and heady. So this is almost kind of like Primer stretched over like 10 episodes or something like that. So that's the first thing I watch. I just mentioned these both because they're both German. Um, uh, and and uh, I think that was the first... German Netflix series uh, ever, I think, was dark. And then the second one, which I I liked better, I preferred, uh, it's called Babylon Berlin. Have you heard of this thing? No. Um, it was actually pretty neat. I wouldn't give it like a full 10 out of 10, but it was it was definitely interesting. It, it, it's Netflix has it sort of listed as one long 16-episode season, but what it actually is is two eight-episode seasons that they've kind of strung together into one big epic thing. But it's basically, I think it's done by about three different uh, German directors. One of them is Tom Tiekwer that did like, run, I don't know if that's how you pronounce his name, but it's, uh, he's the guy that did Run, Lola, Run, and The Princess and the Warrior and stuff. And he's also one of the directors on the, the kind of epic Technicolor mess that is Sense8, uh, which I watched the first season of and was not that impressed with. And then this is like, a whole different ball game like this is like filmmaking on a like a whole other level it's like him and two other people i can't remember their names but basically um it's this big epic historical drama series that takes place in like weimar republic berlin so it's like early 30s berlin like pre-world war ii all the stuff is just starting to develop um you know when the series takes place and, and it's basically like kind of like a murder mystery with a lot of like political intrigue and sort of like noirish. It's just a lot of stuff going on. Like the main character is this sort of police, like kind of homicide detective. And there's like, you know, uh, like there's all sorts of intrigue going on. There's like this like stolen train car with like all this gold in it. And there's, um, uh, you know, bodies that keep turning up and, and, and brothels and, uh, 
all kinds of stuff going on. And it's really, really well shot and filmed and directed. The cinematography is beautiful. The, the production design is amazing. All the sets and costumes and everything. Apparently, it's the most expensive German uh, television series or possibly production that's ever been created. So it's like, so over there, it's kind of like a big epic thing and um and it's just really neat because i'm just personally a big fan of that time period like all the the whole cabarets and and uh you know the brothels and the whole weimar you know the pre-war kind of uh berlin type of deal and um and it's just really fun there's there's a lot of characters um and it's kind of reminded me of the wire in in a sense where like it, it takes a really long time before you kind of figure out what everybody's deal is and how they're all connected to one another you see all these people like you know from from you know cops to criminals to low lives to cabaret performers to brothel workers to uh you know uh political active you know you just there's all of these different characters and you're not quite sure exactly how they all interrelate and they do uh but it takes quite a while to get there but there's a lot of just really cool kind of character development and atmosphere just moments and little neat kind of touches and stuff and once again, I, w- I wouldn't uh, like dark. I wouldn't give it like a full ten out of ten, but but it's definitely um, quite well done. It gets a little out of control at the end with the sort of green screen backgrounds and CGI and stuff like that. But but uh, most of it is actually quite uh, quite well done. So I, I'd recommend that one. You recommend them both, you think? Uh, I'd recommend dark to to anybody who likes sort of austere, challenging. Uh, dark fantasy especially if they have an interest in kind of like time travel or time travel paradoxes or something like that it is quite sort of talky and slow and dense but if you're if you're good with that kind of thing i'd say it's definitely a a worthwhile entry in the sort of time travel uh subgenre uh and i would recommend babylon berlin basically to anyone who's a fan of like film noir or murder mysteries or uh uh, pre pre war era Germany or Weimar uh, cabaret type stuff or any anything like that or just just a cool kind of period piece adventure kind of uh, mystery kind of thing. Well, our viewing habits aside, the movie that we're here to talk about this episode is from the year two thousand seventeen from director David Lowry. We're going to be talking about a ghost story. A ghost story. I actually wrote a ghost world, but that's a wildly that's a whole different, different movie. movie. <laughs> yeah. We should have done a back-to-back uh, podcast about all things ghost, starting with Patrick Swayze and Pat- Demi yeah, Moore. Of course, of course. Okay, let's take a look at how Netflix has chosen to describe this movie. Uh, the first option, and then we'll decide which one we like better. The first option is his life was tragically cut short. Now he's on a somber, solitary journey to explore the mysteries of time and love. Spoiler alert. <laughs> That's just a spoiler right in the synopses, you know? It's just like... Um, yeah, the other one, the other one does too, though. So following a fatal car crash, a man's spirit remains stuck in the home he shared with his wife as doors into the past and future begin to open with no way to use the washroom. And that's not even really accurate, even like hard to say. Um, it's, I I guess anybody who's still listening at this point, uh, let's hope that they've seen the movie already. Because if if you've tuned out after 14 minutes, you are in for, (laughs) yeah, yeah, totally. You're in for, I guess you're not in for right. Cause you, yeah, in in all fairness, the protagonist, uh, uh, perishes in the first 15 minutes. Would you say probably about 15 minutes into the movie? Yeah. Maybe not even that, maybe like 12 or something. It is hard to keep track of time when you're watching this movie. Yes. Um, but just before we get into into our analysis, uh, I do want to say that Netflix also describes this movie as cerebral 
and understated. Which normally I make fun of when they say right, understated, right. but I actually it, it, like I think it fits this. It's one. pretty understated. Yeah, yeah. Um, have so, you seen Jim Jarmusch's um, Patterson? That's that's like the the most understated movie I've seen in, in a really long time. I haven't. No, <laughs> I really liked it. Everybody I know hated it, but uh, it's 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 uh, understated with a capital U. So Jeremy, you had you had the the full range of Netflix at your disposal, right. and the movie that you picked was a ghost story. So. Get us started by telling me why that's the movie that you chose. Uh, I just like spun my controller and it just happened to land on that one. No, um, I thought uh, there, there were actually Netflix recently actually just added a whole bunch of movies. I really like normally it's kind of slim pickings on there. Like I kind of have to search through for a really long time to get something that I really dig. Uh, but um, they just dropped a whole bunch of stuff. Not not too long ago, um, like Todd Haynes's Carol and, and stuff like that that I really like. But I just thought this this film in particular I thought would probably be the the coolest, most interesting one to talk about, just because it is such a different, uh, it is such a different film, and it does have such a different approach to its drama than most films. <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> Speaking of understatements, um, I, I I saw this film um, in Toronto last year when I was at TIFF. I, it wasn't part of TIFF though. I don't think it was part of the official TIFF selection. I just saw it there while I was in Toronto at TIFF Bell Lightbox. But um, the funny thing is, I knew that I was either going to love or hate this film uh, before even walking into it. I, I kind of had a rough idea what it was about. I'd read like sort of an article or something about it and I'd seen like a trailer and I thought this is going to be one of those completely polarizing movies uh, that, that you know, people are, are either, you're either going to just love it or hate it. And I thought, you know, conceptually, I just thought this sounds like the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard of. You know what I mean? I, I saw it like I read I read the sort of article where they're talking about sort of what the, the sort of gist of the film was. And I'd seen like a little teaser trailer or something. And I just thought, OK, th- this is absolutely ridiculous, just completely absurd. And I thought I, I'm curious to see if they can pull it off because I knew it wasn't like a jokey movie. I knew it wasn't like sort of like a wacky, you know, kind of um, uh, what do you call it? Like a stunt kind of movie. I, I, I knew it was sort of you know, supposed to be like a serious art film kind of kind of movie. And so I, I went to go see it and thought, um, you know, like I, I was really skeptical when I went into it. I was really skeptical because I thought the concept and visuals of this just seems so ridiculous. It's going to be tough to be able to disarm me and get me to kind of like suspend my disbelief and go with it. And so I was really, really pleasantly surprised. Uh, I watched the thing all by myself at Tiff Bell Lightbox, just sort of sat there you know, taking it all in. And I was really surprised by how quickly, uh, you know, I was kind of disarmed and how, uh, like, sort of wholeheartedly I was willing to go with it, you know, to to, to say, okay, I accept this completely ridiculous concept, <laughs> this absurd kind of uh, pivot that the, or the fulcrum or whatever this whole movie pivots on. Uh, and 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 I'm 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 ready to to go with this thing. I I know I mentioned it in a previous podcast we did, but it really, as I was watching it, it recalled that uh, article or the review that Nick Cave uh, had written about that Russian film, Mother and Son, which is essentially like a, like a feature length film about this young Russian man who's like taking care of his dying mother and just kind of like spending time with her and walking through the landscape with her stuff. And Nick Cave said because he was very close with his mother, he said that. Um, that basically he just kind of started watching it and immediately was just kind of overtaken with like melancholy and just sat through the whole movie, just sort of weeping, just kind of like quietly weeping to himself while he was watching the movie the whole, all the way through. And that kind of happened to me with this thing. I, it's strange. The film has such a, like a pervasive 
kind of melancholy, a sense of kind of like this all-encompassing kind of like loneliness, this very delicate, sad, quiet kind of longing to it. And it just it kind of made me like I think I just teared up randomly through the whole thing for no specific reason. It wasn't like at a specific part, just the the overall just tone and vibe. Um, it just kind of got to me and, and, and I just sort of like sat there crumpled in the seat, you know, just kind of with like tears in my eyes the whole thing. And it just I feel like it's probably one of the best films that's ever made, I think, about like bereavement. Which is strange to say because it's such a fantastical kind of film. It's not like a serious film like, uh, you know, with Shirley MacLaine and Jack, you know, like Terms of Endearment or Steel Magnolias or Beaches. or It's not one of these like serious kind of like tearjerker films about somebody dying of cancer or something. But but having said that, even taking into consideration it's sort of like fantastical uh, sort of structure, um, I thought that, that it was one of the, the most kind of moving films about about like loss and, and bereavement and... Uh, and kind of like uh, longing and, and and that sort of thing, and so so I was really I really was, was surprised by how much I was willing to kind of go with this. Right. Um, so for anybody who hasn't seen it, uh, Jeremy just made reference a couple of minutes ago to kind of the. I mean, I don't think it's unfair to say like the gimmick, sure <laughs> of sure. the movie, and that's that. Uh, as we mentioned in the plot synopsis, there's a character who I think his name is listed as C, but like you never hear it spoken. He, yeah, I his, thought it was something like him and her. Yeah, his name is he and she. His name is C. Her name is M. Um, but if we say him and her, like that's who we're talking about. Um, so Casey Affleck's character, uh, they're they're a husband and wife. They're living in this house. There's some kind of tension that's unspoken between them. We don't know exactly what's going on. Uh, but he ends up dying in a car accident less than a block away from his house. And uh, and then he spends the rest of the movie as a ghost, but dressed up in like a stereotypical Halloween ghost costume. Literally like, it's, like it's Casper a, the Friendly Ghost. It is a white sheet draped over his head with eye holes. And is there a mouth? No, just, just, no, two, just two sort of black vacant eye holes right and occasionally you can actually see his eyes behind them but basically, no i don't think you can ever see the eyes it's just I, I, sort do, of like I do remember like one moment where, where you can see the eyes really? behind them but maybe that was supposed to be like a revelatory moment or hmm. something where he was back in touch with his humanity but um yeah <laughs> that's a thing that happens in this movie and my initial gut reaction to this was just like fuck off yeah this is the most pretentious thing i have yeah. ever seen in my life like, I thought that I was getting into some kind of, like, weird twee comedy sort of thing. Yeah, like Garden State or something. Yeah, and I was so surprised by how quickly I got over that and, and how, how quickly I was able to just kind of get behind it and just accept, like, okay, like, this yeah. this symbol obviously is supposed to read ghost to me because yeah. it's, if you drew that ghost as a cartoon, I'd tell you you were being lazy. Sure, yeah. It's... And that's the main character of this movie. For pretty much but, the entire yeah, movie. Yes, and you follow this ghost figure through like he like it's it's said in the description like mainly he stays inside of his house i guess he does occupy the same space right like when he goes into the future that's the same space but on yeah, he's, he's, yeah he's usually in the same area whether it's past present or future right. he's always kind of in the same general vicinity yeah uh but every with everything kind of shifting around him right so yeah you you end up seeing him occupying this space and watching 
you know, watching his wife grieve him and mm-hmm. watching his wife eventually start to move on and watch his wife move away, watch the next family come mm-hmm. into the house, watch the people who move in after that throw a yeah. house party um, and all of his reactions to it. And, and again, I know I already said it, but like I was so surprised by how quickly I got yeah. past my anger about the bullshit yeah, that was yeah. being fed to me. I thought that was a really tremendous accomplishment. I think, yeah, I, th- I think that is quite an amazing feat of, uh, is it David Lowry? Is that the director's name? Yeah. Um, I, I, I remember thinking like the fact that he could kind of come up with a concept that on the surface just seems like, like you, like you said, like twee or pretentious or just like so utterly ridiculous and kind of simple, simple to the point of kind of absurdity and then twist it into this really moving, sort of meditation on like life and death and loss and 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 sort of uh, love and just ever you know it's such simple strokes it's almost like a when you see like a child painting or a, or a child's drawing or something and they don't really have like the technical skill you know to paint like a caravaggio or something but but they do it with such simple like raw emotion you know what i mean like there's just, just some slashes on a page with like yeah. a crayon or something but like you you see what they've done and 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 sometimes it really hits you because uh because you know, with just a few crayon slashes, they've conveyed like like sort of a, a, a feeling or emotion with with the same degree of passion as like Michelangelo, you know, like the Sistine Ch- Chapel ceiling or something. Yeah, I thought I thought that was the greatest accomplishment of this film was was to uh, be able to to you know sort of sell a concept that's so uh, would be so easy to just kind of laugh at or scoff at, and 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 then by the end of the film have it wind up like genuinely moving and i wonder if he did that on purpose like i wonder if he said i'm gonna i'm gonna come up with this framework that's so utterly ridiculous and then springboard that to actually yeah. trying to make people feel something really real and deep and profound and uh you know and and oddly enough i think he pulled it off I, when i when i walked out of the movie i remember thinking to myself he just did in like 90 minutes what terrence malick tried to do with the tree of life <laughs> and just totally failed yeah. like I, I i thought i think like um, all the, those later period Terrence Malick films, like you know, like The Tree of Life and, and To the Wonder, and uh, what's the one that Christian Bale's in? It's like uh, Knight of Cups, I think. Um, those kind of things. I, I thought he just nailed it in a way. Someone else I was talking to as well was like saying that they really felt like a strong similarities to Interstellar as well, with like the time kind of sh- yeah. jumps and everything, and, and that and that you know he he kind of pulled that off, and I think maybe the way that he achieved that is that maybe the trick is in, in the, its simplicity because uh, the, the Malick films and the, and the, the Nolan film and everything is like very dense and complicated. And it's, it's supposed to be like very heady and very, uh, you know, intellectual and very uh, sort of complicated and broke. Whereas this thing is just like, it's like a child's line drawing of like a, yeah. bo- a square or something like that. Yeah. I mean, there's absolutely or a circle would be a better way to describe it. Yeah. I mean, there's something so, absolutely archetypal about the way that they've gone about it it's just like yeah. okay so now we have a ghost and we're starting with that as Even our the title like a ghost story yeah like, it's it's just you have a ghost and you're not given a very much context for this person's life beforehand it literally doesn't matter because what you're right. experiencing is what it's like to grieve and what it would be like to to occupy that space yeah and so everything that stems from that is like every emotion that you feel, every sympathy, every empathy that you feel mm-hmm. in watching this movie is genuine and it's pure. It's not tainted by context yeah. or anything. It's just you know enough to understand what this thing is feeling. And you do have to use your imagination a bit when, I mean, time jumps forward. But it's not like, you know, for 
for the character, for the ghost, it's mm-hmm. not that he's literally leaping forward in time. It's that all of a sudden he's in an empty house, and so he has nothing to look at, so he just stands there. Yeah. And the passage of for time... For years, maybe. Yeah, and the passage of time is just... He has nothing to look at, so he stands there and he looks at nothing until something comes up. Right. And so for him, it's like time is totally dilated because nothing has changed yeah. for him. There's no, there's no, there's no context. There's no differentiation. Like maybe he's watching like the leaves fall and and, and sure, or a whole season just passed by. I think um, the film plays with time in a really interesting way, and it doesn't really do so until he dies. Um, because the first, you know, 15 minutes of the film or so when it's just, you know, Casey Affleck and Rooney Mara and they're this couple, um, it just kind of plays out kind of in, in regular time. But then, you know, uh, after he dies, um, you know, for, for the first little bit, you know, it, it seems, you know, kind of to just kind of still be following along in linear sense. But the longer he kind of remains deceased, the more sort of fluid and pliable time becomes until it just starts to become, uh, instead of kind of like, a like a line just going from A to B, like from left to right, it starts to become something a lot more sort of amorphous and uh, kind of circular and spherical and stuff. And See, it, you know. I, I would actually disagree with that. I know that there is kind of like a, a, a cycle sort of thing that happens where he ends up going back and Yeah, time, like back but, and forward and all over the But place. I still see that as being a linear thing because I see him going from point A to point B mm-hmm. and there being this long stretch of time in between that just kind of collapses because right. nothing memorable happened. Like it... it there is a straight line that happens, right? Like up to a certain point, but then up to it, a it kind point, of fractures at a certain point. It does like, fracture, but then even then, it it kind of like it jumps back to a certain point, yeah, and then and it then moves forward back to his original starting. Almost kind of like, like there a loop is a, or something. Almost kind of like it's it's kind of caught in this. Yeah, loop although keeps... I I mean, even a loop suggests that it's going to keep going, and there is definitely an ending mm-hmm. to it. Um, <laughs> what a fucked up movie. Yeah, it's hard. Uh, it's hard to even describe. Yeah. Like to even yeah. Uh, have the conversation about and i mean if you if you compare those like die those dilated moments that i talked about where Mm -hmm. you see i mean we don't know if it's months we don't know if it's years Mm -hmm. um in some cases it is years because we see the house you know after the house party or even like decades when it gets in that futuristic stuff it could be like you know oh yeah 100 years has gone right after the house is destroyed or even like leading up to the house being destroyed you you see that the house is all of a sudden for the ghost in this dilapidated state that you Mm -hmm. didn't watch it fall into but it was you know, little micro moments of rot that yeah. the ghost wouldn't have noticed because he was waiting for his wife to come back or, or whatever yeah. the case was. Or he was watching a house party with literally the worst house guest of all time, right. just bumming everybody out at the dinner table. Um, but if you compare like those dilated moments to what was in retrospect, one of the best parts of the movie, but at the time watching it made me want to just give up and stop watching it is watching uh, Rooney Mara after she comes back yeah. from I presume the funeral or maybe it's even the day that she's found out that her husband died. And there's right. a, the real estate agent has dropped has off left a the pie, pie for her and watching Rooney yeah. Mara eat a pie for like tw- what In feels like time. 20 minutes. Yeah. It pissed me off. I was yeah, like, how yeah. dare you make me watch this? And it's not that there's nothing wrong with yeah. Rooney Mara. Rooney Mara is a wonderful actor. I have loved her in a bunch of things that she's doing. Yeah. But it was just like to hear every scrape Painful. of the fork against the, the you know the pie plate and hearing like her slopping into her mouth. Like that's <laughs> such a such an irritant for my ears. And for, I was just like, how? My, how gr- dare my girlfriend this? has the same uh, has the same uh, like. Uh, issue of uh, listening to people eat like yeah. the sounds it makes like with people putting food in their mouth yeah and it just it drove me so fucking makes her go crazy. crazy that i was like how dare you take my time in this way after you 
feed me this yeah. bullshit ghost and then you make me watch this fucking ghost for like watch somebody and a half eat a fucking pie i was so angry and then once we were past that point i was so on board for this movie and i loved yeah. it yeah and i think i think that that was sort of a necessary thing i, I know exactly what you're talking about because it, it seems like it takes her like forever to eat this pie like she eats the entire pie for anybody who hasn't seen the movie like it's she like eats she an entire basically eats an, an entire yeah. giant baked dish of pie um in real time uh it seems like it's like 15 minutes but in in reality it's probably only like seven or eight or something but but basically i think that 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 was there on purpose uh because it happened so soon after he dies i think that's there to kind of say um like 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 to just so that you understand the monotony of him just having to stand there kind of helplessly watching like like you know he's standing there watching her sleep he's in the bedroom when she goes to bed and he kind of like sort of ghostly caresses her leg or something like that and then you see like the sun the the, the dark kind of changes to the sun like the color temperature kind of changes in the room of her lying in bed and you realize it's morning and then it cuts to a shot where he's still just standing there for the bed watching her so he's just stood there for like eight hours or more just completely motionless just staring at her and i think uh, the pie eating scene kind of is there to kind of illustrate like right off the bat just the sort of monotony of of him just being kind of stuck there but unable to really do anything or communicate in any way and just having to kind of become this observer that just stands there for day after day week after week month after month year after year like just waiting and how kind of frustrating that is and and i think in a sense that's why why the time jumps kind of start to speed up as the movie you know kind of gets going because i I think it kind of shows you the initially okay this this is what it's like for him but then as the movie goes on the time between sequences seems to encompass more and more time like you know like it cuts to okay these are the next people that live in the house but then it's like okay and then these are way down the line these you know university students partying and then the house is in disarray the house is being torn down he's in an empty field they're building like a new building then he's in this big futuristic structure he's on the roof and it looks like blade runner 2049 or something (laughs) suddenly it's like uh uh, a ghost in the shell or something like that right and and uh yeah in in retrospect that movie or that scene is incredibly powerful and rooney mara does such an incredible job of depicting grief and like Mm -hmm. the rawness of grief and and the different things that you do when you're grieving like the fact that she um the way that she crawls into the bed where she's just like okay i'm crawling into this bed which used to be the place that provided me comfort but also this is the place that reminds me of what's not there anymore so she's actually kind of laying off in like a bottom corner almost like a cat would of just like i'm trying to get what i can from this thing but it's also this really painful reminder of what's gone because that's obviously like where they made love and 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 everything yeah i mean it's together it's it's where it's where couples literally spend i mean couples that live together or cohabitate or whatever it's where they literally spend most of their lives whether they're conscious or not right you spend a third of your life sleeping and if you're sharing a bed with somebody you're spending a third of your life sharing a bed with somebody yeah and so like that's got to be this like painful gutty reminder and even when she um and i i sorry one of the one of the incredibly painful things about grief that i feel like this movie really nails is that when somebody's taken from you unexpectedly and i mean just so that i can get brownie points for being vulnerable on air like uh like my my mother passed away about a year and a half ago like totally unexpectedly i mean we knew she was sick but it was just like one day she was there one day she was gone the same thing happened to my aunt like not that long ago yeah and uh it's not necessarily like when you know that somebody's dying and if you're prepared for it then you can create final moments but what rooney mara's character goes through is 
these moments where she realizes that she already had her last moment and she didn't yeah. realize it at the time. Like when she's, I, I forget what she's doing. I There's feel like no she's, resolution. There's she's no like closure. maybe checking her. Oh no, it's when she, uh, when she goes and checks, she goes to throw something in the garbage and then she looks down into the garbage and we don't know what she sees, but she sees something that's reminded her of her husband. And that has reminded her of that's the last time that he's going to throw that in there or that's the last yeah. whatever. I already had that. And realizing that you're not even going to have the time to create final memories. What yeah. you have is what yeah. you have and nothing else is coming back. And it's so fucking gutty watching you never her go know. through that. You, you never really know how long you have with someone or when you see someone, if, if you're ever going to see them again. I don't want to be too morbid here, overtly morbid. but It's but a I movie mean, about death. Yeah, it's okay. but <laughs> even, with, even with our own lives, you know what I mean? Like I, I could be on my way to the grocery store tomorrow and get hit by a drunk driver that ran a red light, and that could be it. And then you'd say, oh, that's I guess that's the last time we're going to do a podcast together. You know, I mean, it's so, it's so fleeting and kind of temporary and illusory. You know, the, just life in general. Um you know, and while we're here, you know, while we're here in a tangible, concrete way, you know, we're we're connecting and we're, you know, we're talking, we're sharing moments stuff. But you, but you never really know how long you have or how long anyone else has or anything like that. And we tend to just sort of not really think about this. But the film, um, it kind of illustrates it in a really interesting way because, uh, you know, once again, spoiler alert, but if they've made it this far, it probably doesn't matter. But 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 essentially the way that his death is depicted is is in such a sort of a casual, nonchalant way. Like it just it just portrays a lot of scenes of them at the house together, and you know they might get in a little argument, or they then it might show them lying in bed together, holding each other, or he's working on a song, or there's tension about how she wants to move out of the house into like the bigger city or something, but he's content staying there, and that's causing like a lot of rift with the relationship. But then literally, like it's just sort of like um, there's a really strange moment, and I'm not even fully certain that I understand it. There's this part where it kind of dissolves to these clouds. And then you hear this kind of bump, like this kind of crash, and the camera pans down really rapidly to the house. But then it's just Rooney Mara coming out of the house with some sort of uh, something she's throwing away, like some sort of little wooden cabinet or something that she's just put, putting out at the curb. But then almost like, I think there's maybe one more scene of the two of them in bed together saying, but then it's almost like the next day you hear a similar kind of thud and it cuts to out in front of their house and you see this kind of smoke kind of like coming into the frame and the camera very slowly kind of turns and you see there's been this car accident and then it cuts to sort of a push a closer push-in shot where you see that it's actually his car and that in that he's uh i mean you don't technically know that he's dead right away but you see that he's injured that he's bumped his head there's blood on his forehead and he's just kind of lying motionless yeah. against the steering wheel for a long time kind of a very long push-in and it's very kind of just sort of nonchalant like it, it sort of has the same quietness of just the wind blowing through the trees or just the grass or a bird or whatever and he's just sort of dead and the next thing you see is her at the morgue identifying his body and i actually i really liked the way they did this and i'm not sure if this is actually the the origin of why ghosts traditionally in folklore and stuff like that have the white sheet and stuff like Like, i'm not sure if if this is just like a you know like it just went completely over my head and this is just like a totally known and understood thing or if the (laughs) film actually attempted to sort of rationalize <laughs> to like uh, retcon ghost yeah these imagery. kind of these yeah. kind of yeah these kind of, well it kind of does in a way do all these retcons because you know the film in a sense you know starts out with these sort of horror cliches of them living in this spooky kind of house where there's all these creaks and noises and they see these weird kind of colored blobs on the wall and they get up in the night and they hear these kind of creepy noises and piano keys being tinkled and stuff like that and um 
you know, and it kind of it kind of for a while there kind of follows these kind of age old horror tropes of having like kind of ominous music and bumps in the night and stuff like that. Right. But then they do this weird shift where it almost kind of like it shifts and then tries to explain it in a completely rational matter of fact way from the perspective of the actual ghost itself. Like, uh, you know, I, I thought it was really interesting that, you know, you see, you see him. OK, like you see you see a body under a white sheet lying on the morgue table and then the the uh, mortician or whatever. um what do you call it? The morgue attendant uh, pulls back. The I think sheet, you had it. Yeah. You know, to reveal Casey Affleck like dead, deceased. And Rooney Mara is there to identify the body or whatever, and, you know, or to see him one last time or whatever. Right. And so she's kind of like, you know, OK. And then the guy puts the sheet back over him and she leaves and it just holds on this kind of long shot for a really long time of, of just this kind of body lying on the slab. And then at a certain point, there's just sort of like a little shift in tone or lighting or something. And he, and he just sits up and he's got the white sheet. Up. Like, yeah, like literally the, the reason that he has the white sheet on is because that's the sheet that was over top of him when he was like lying on the morgue table. And then he just stands up. He just kind of like gets up from the table and starts like wandering through the halls of the hospital with this sheet on. And uh, and then somehow in the next shot, like there's these eye holes. <laughs> right. But but uh, it's interesting, though. I, I thought it was kind of interesting in a sense that, um, you know, he's sort of wandering through the annals of the hospital and, and he goes toward the exit sign. Like there's this big red glowing exit sign with like an arrow pointing down this corridor. And so he kind of follows the exit sign. and He turns down the corridor and it's just a regular hospital hallway. Nothing special about it. But from his perspective, this kind of weird afterlife perspective. When he gets to the end of the hallway, this big, brilliant, white sort of doorway kind of opens up in the wall. It almost seems like this is the way out, like follow the light or whatever, yep. you know, you know, uh, you know, go toward the light, Casey. But he just sort of stands there. <laughs> it's funny, too, because it doesn't stay open for very long. It's almost like you have to just jump into it before yep. it closes. But, it, but he just kind of stands there like he doesn't know what to do. And then it closes, obviously you know, he doesn't want to leave her, you know, obviously, you know, the next thing you see him do is like walking back to the house. Yeah. You know, this is a ghost in like a bed sheet. But it, but it is interesting the way they've kind of retconned all the stuff, because then in the next part of the movie, y- you see him at the house trying to communicate with her, uh, you know, and like doing things like trying to move things or tinkling piano keys or scratching the walls or whatever. And then you see it from her perspective where in her mind, it's just the same old creaky noises or inexplicable bumps in the night or whatever. But then, but then you see it from his perspective and instead of being this sort of, sort of scary, like John Carpenter, you know, kind of uh, spooky uh, exorcist kind of thing. It, it, it takes a whole different tone of, of just being really sad. Like it's just this really lonely kind of disembodied spirit that, that instead of, you know, seeking salvation or peace, or whatever came back to this person that he that he loves and is not ready to kind of leave or say goodbye yeah. to and he's just desperately trying to connect with her or even just let her know that that he's there yeah it's kind of um sad <laughs> yeah and i mean the more i think about it the more i realize that it, it is such a conventional ghost story that it's that you know he had the chance to move on but he had some unfinished business like ghosts with patrick swayze it's, it's literally yeah, like the kind go- of art or, film, the like, minimalist art or, film version of yeah ghosts. i mean like it <laughs> or for me i was like fucking it's like 1996 casper with like christina Ricci, right, right right you know they have he has this unfinished business and it's so i think that one of the one of the great things that this movie does is has restraint in terms of talking about that sure. and in terms of like putting it all out there yeah like um the director has said after the fact that the tension between 
M and C is actually largely based on a relationship that he had with his wife where he was in a home that he really liked and she wanted to move. And that was, that was the basis of their tension. And I was like, I got that that was part of their relationship, but like, I don't need like having an origin story and having like that full understanding is detrimental because I don't, it's so much more important to be able to fill in those gaps and to just kind of like express my own grief or my own like idea of what a lost relationship would look like onto that. And the movie doesn't like broadcast or be like, this is exactly what he feels weird about. And this is exactly how she feels about him. Like it doesn't give you those details. It lets you fill them in. It's very minimalist. and It's very vague. I thought that was actually something that was really interesting about the film is the fact that um, when it depicts their relationship at the beginning of the film, like for the first 15 minutes or so, it's kind of vague and unclear as to how happy they are and how like healthy the relationship is and stuff like that, because you know, it it, it seems as though there is this kind of underlying tension, you know I mean? Like uh, you do see kind of tender scenes of them, like lying in bed together, lying on the couch together, having conversations or, you know, stroking each other's hair or whatever. But then you also see these kind of tensions of like, you know, she's, you know, kind of looking at real estate things like wanting to move to, to a bigger city or something, you know, get an apartment in like Manhattan or something. And he's kind of really attached to this kind of rustic small town kind of house that they live in. And, and obviously that's a tension and there. And there's just certain things like uh, when she listens to his song, you know, that he's been working on. She just sort of hands him back the headphones. It doesn't say anything and walks out of the room and he kind of has this like wounded look on his face like he just played her something that was really important to him and he, she just didn't really comment on it. Yeah. But I thought that was one of the things that really increases and gives depth to the kind of melancholy of both her after he's dead and the ghost because it would be so easy to just depict this really happy couple where everything was perfect and they totally loved each other uh, you know, and then he died and then she's really sad because he's dead and, and stuff. You know or he misses her because he was so happy with her or whatever. Like that just seems so pat. But the fact that like it was like an imperfect relationship and that they, they did have some tensions and issues and stuff, I think sort of compounds the tragedy of them being kind of separated without any warning. Cause like you said, I mean, if, if he had cancer or something or knew they knew that one of them was going to die, they would have time to kind of resolve things or make up or apologize yeah. or whatever. But like the fact that it happened so abruptly, part of the reason why she's so devastated, you know, like when she's eating the pie and everything, you know, is not probably just because, you know, he's gone and she loved him or whatever, but also because, you know, maybe she's like, oh, I, I wish I apologized for, for being, you know, unfair in this argument we had, or I should have, maybe I could have been a little nicer or maybe I should. And same with him. Like he, he probably feels as well, like as, as the spirit or whatever, you know, I wish I could have, you know, told her I loved her one more time, or maybe I, I, I should have just got the apartment in Manhattan with her, mm-hmm. or, you know, like, it seems like there's this kind of disjointed, like this disconnect where it's like, they both kind of feel like, Maybe they they did really love each other a lot, but there were just some things that they wish they could have said to one another yeah, one more time or something. I think part of it, too, I mean, something that nobody really wants to talk about with grief is that, like, it doesn't have to be entirely positive. Like, you might be, like, fucking furious that you didn't get a chance to, like, say what you really wanted to say and yeah. just be, like, and not stand up for yourself. And now, like, how, like, it is absolutely normal to be angry at a person for dying like how dare you like i was i had i had this to say i was gonna stand up for myself i was gonna i was planning on fighting you and now you've just automatically won this goddamn fight because i can't fight with a ghost like i'm thinking of um there was a a scene in the uh the premiere episode of american gods that did this really well where where the main character shadow is fighting is uh is having an interaction with with uh 
with a woman over his wife's grave where it, it turns out that I know the scene you're talking about. Yeah. And where, where, you know, they're both, they're both trying to come to grips with the fact that they've recently learned something mm-hmm. about like their spouses and everything. And just like yeah. grief isn't as simple as just like, Oh man, I miss somebody. And now I'm sad about it. Like there's so, it's such a complicated emotion. Yeah. And you know, you mentioned the the scenes that that really let you understand that. I mean, like human relationships are complicated. Like it's not as easy as it typically is in the movies, and a ghost story yeah. isn't afraid to show that. Yeah. And the one that really spoke to me, and I don't know how much of this is projection or what, but was uh, when M and C are are laying in the bed together, and they seem like they're kind of like grabbing at each other, like they're just like, I want to be as close as possible, yeah. but. Like it, it's setting up like it's about to turn into a sex scene, but it never does. Never and I'm like, is that, is that showing us that this is actually a really intimate relationship where they can just like be in each other's presence and just kind of like feed off of each other because of, you know, like the the genuine love that they have for each other, or are there like intimacy issues that they're not addressing? Like, is 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 he yeah. actually holding back in a way, and but he's like trying really hard to break through that? Like, it's such. It's so complicated and so fucking real, and it's I very appreciated vague. that so it's much. It's very vague and minimal, and, and 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 in a way where, like you said, I mean, you c- you really are able to fill in the blanks, like uh, yourself. Like it's sort of like you see pieces of things, you see fragments of things, but it never really, in this didactic sort of way, explains to you exactly how everything fits together. And, and so you kind of have to fill in the blanks. And it's probably totally ambiguous. I'm sure if you asked the director, he'd say it's you know it's up to you. You know, I and mean, yeah. we've all been in relationships where there have been you know tensions or things you know that were maybe not quite perfect and and it's interesting i think i think it does a good job uh the first 15 minutes of the the film in illustrating kind of what it's like for a relationship with two people who who really do love each other and care about each other but they've been together probably for a while and it's not the same as it was in the beginning because you know in the very beginning people are courting and everything's fresh and new and everybody's on their best behavior and trying to impress each other and you know but then after a while you know you know, you wind up living with someone or, or, or having children with someone or, or, or getting married or all these different factors, you know, or maybe having financial difficulties or somebody loses a job or something. And suddenly you've been together for five or ten years and the sort of like the freshness is worn off and you still do really care about each other, you know, and love each other. But but there is sort of like a tension there, you know, like um, there are there are developed maybe some unresolved issues or resentments or, you know, with with anyone that you I mean, even familial, I mean, even with your family, I mean, you know siblings and parents and children stuff always wind up yelling at each other and stuff because they're just in close proximity and for such a long time uh and and these things develop so i I thought that was interesting and 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 props to the actors too you you mentioned rooney mar before you know and how much you liked her and the funny thing for me is when i first uh saw rooney mara i didn't really think that much of her um i think the first time I, i ever saw her was in the social network and she just plays the kind yeah. of annoying girlfriend of uh, Zuckerberg. Okay, um, to be fair, she is the rational girlfriend <laughs> well, of Zuckerberg. Well, compared to him, yeah. Who is himself <laughs> super Yeah, maybe, maybe I should yeah. say she's the sort of patient and understanding uh, partner of a sociopath. But I, I just <laughs> I, I, I just found her a bit sort of grating and annoying. And, 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 and I just kind of thought, well, you know, she's all right, but whatever. But but she, over, over the years, uh, has wound up impressing me in several different films because... Um, I was a big fan of the original Scandinavian girl with the dragon tattoo. Yeah. And I really liked, uh, I'm not sure quite how you pronounce her name, but Numi Rapace, Numi Rapace, what, sure. whatever her name Better is. Than but, I but I really liked her take on Lisbeth uh, Salander. And, um, and so when I found out they were doing an American remake, I was like, okay, here we go. But then I found out it was Fincher. And I thought, well, at least it's going to look good. <laughs> at least it's going <laughs> to look and sound good. 
but and then I found out that Rooney Mara had been cast as Elizabeth, and I just thought, oh God, like I don't know about this. You know, this is, I don't I don't I just feel like she she didn't she wasn't gonna have the chops to do it. Then I saw the film and was really impressed. I mean, I thought uh, I thought she did a really good job as Elizabeth. You know what I mean? Um, I thought that. You know, I mean, just the, the her whole demeanor and, and the way she did, like, the voice and the accent and everything and her whole look and everything. I thought she was really believable as that character. And I, I wouldn't I'm not going to say one was, like, better than the other, but I would say, like, in different ways for different reasons. I'd say they're 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 sort of on par for me in my mind, like the Numi Rapace and the Rooney Mara characterizations mm-hmm. um, of that character. Um, and so and so that was cool. And then. She's gone on to do other things. I, I really enjoyed um, the Todd Haynes film, Carol, with Kate Blanchett and uh, Rooney Mara. I thought that was a really good film. Um, obviously, hugely influenced by Brief Encounter. But um, if you can get past that, I, I thought it was just a really well done kind of love story, period piece type thing. And uh, so, yeah, and, and, and like you said, she does do a terrific job in this film of conveying the sort of complexities of grief and bereavement not not just necessarily being sad over losing someone but also the the underlying you know issues or resentments or unspoken Mm -hmm. things that were never said or you know just the complexity i think that's part of what makes it so emotionally engaging and i think i I just said this like five minutes ago but but (laughs) but but basically you know the fact that that their relationship was for whatever reason imperfect and that you could sense kind of a tension in it or or maybe some mild resentments or whatever, I I think is part of what makes the sort of everything that follows kind of more interesting. Her grief and his sort of grief and longing kind of from the spirit world or whatever, that there were some things maybe that were unsaid or, or, or issues that were unresolved or whatever. And we should probably mention as well at this point, we should probably mention like one of the main conceits of the film uh, because the actual, the film, the, 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 the very first dialogue in the film, it starts with that quote from Virginia Woolf. What does it say? It says, um, whatever hour you wake, there was a door shutting. And that's from Virginia Woolf's short story, A Haunted House which is has a very similar title to a ghost story. Um, and that short story by Virginia Woolf is also very short and minimalist and like extremely brief and just kind of to the point. Uh, so this, this film is almost like the kind of cinematic kind of facsimile of, of the Wolf story. Not, not that it's specifically, it's not a remake or anything like that or an adaptation, but I just mean like just in terms of their, their sort of brevity and, and, and minimalism and stuff like that. But the first dialogue you hear in the entire film is Rooney Mara talking about this little ritual that she's had since she was like a a little girl or whatever where where she will just um I can't remember what she said the context was did she say whenever she's leaving a place anytime that she moves from one house to another she leaves a little note behind yeah so she said she she just writes down a little thought or a little message or something like that on a little piece of paper and she hides it somewhere and she sticks it, you know, in a hole in the ground or a crack in the wall or buries it or something like that. Just a little thought, um, uh, you know, and, and that that becomes I mean, it's just it's the very opening dialogue of the film. But it's one of those things where, like, if you're not paying attention, like if you like, you know, you're getting popcorn and you come into the theater like five minutes too late or something, it's really going to fuck up the movie <laughs> for you because it's such an important conceit. And the entire ending, like the entire climax of the movie revolves around this like little this little you know bit of 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 uh information that's dropped like it literally in the first like 30 seconds of the movie where she talks about how she 
she writes a little message or, or an important thought or feeling or something on a piece of paper and she hides it, you know, so, so that someone, uh, you know, unnamed person in the future at some undisclosed time, yeah. you know, can find it. And it's, it, that was really interesting to me because there's two reasons, actually. And an ex, an ex of mine told me that she used to do that. She said that she would go into chapters or bookstores. You know, she'd go into chapters, Indigo, whatever. And she said she'd, she'd write these little notes on little pieces of paper and she'd put them in books. Like she'd just, you know, pick up a copy of The Great Gatsby or whatever and just turn to a random page and just insert this little piece. She never told me what it, they said, but, but you know, I suppose it could have been anything. Like it could have been like, you know... Um, I mean, I'm not even going to speculate, but I mean, it could just just strange little missives, maybe little aphorisms or ponderous little things. But she said that she would do this. She would go into bookstores and know that at some point someone would buy that book yeah. and then they would get to that page and there'd be this strange little disembodied note from someone they didn't know just telling them something. And maybe that provoked a thought or an idea or something. And uh, and there was also a project and I can't remember what it was called or who did it. I just remember somebody telling me about it. It was this sort of internet project where someone said, you know, just write down, you know, your your secret, your your deepest secret or something you've never told anyone ever and, and send it to me. And uh, <laughs> and so this that sounds and, like and, blackmail. Well, they have this website. Right? Yeah, totally. They keep track of all the IP addresses. No, but they but this this person, I'm not sure if it was a man or woman, but they had this website and they would post all these these things that people send them. And, and so, some of it was really beautiful. You know, like somebody might say, like, you know, I'm so proud of my 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 son or something like that. Or, you know, or, or like, um, you know, I'm I, you know, I'm I'm 89 years old and, and just found true love for the first time. But then there was like these really disturbing ones they would get where it said, like, you know, I've been abusing my daughter for the last 10 years or something like that. Yeah. And like and you don't really know if any of it was true. Uh, I mean, I suppose some of it could have been made up or whatever, but 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 it was totally anonymous, you know. But but the interesting thing was that it was just these sort of little pieces, secrets, little things that that that, that no, people wouldn't necessarily say to anyone in real life because they were too personal or right. too condemning or, or you know. Uh, but to a stranger, you know what I mean? I mean, you could put a note in a in a helium balloon and just let it go, and then yeah. you know that eventually it would deflate and come down somewhere else, and someone would find it, uh, which is you know an interesting. Yeah. sort of conceit of in, the film. In Rooney Mara's case, she even says that she doesn't remember what she writes when she moves. And so that really, like what's written on that paper literally does not matter. She could write down the answer to the universe and it literally would not matter because right. it matters to him. That, it's just a grocery list or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> like, you, know, egg, you know. Yeah, there once was a man English from Nantucket or something. Yeah. Like it's, it literally doesn't matter. It's just that it matters to him yeah. because eventually once he like loops back through time, mm -hmm it becomes a fixation where it's like, okay, there's something tangible. There is now a goal that I can do because I've realized that I am never going to have this person back in my yeah, life because yeah. enough time has passed. So instead I'm going to manipulate space in the very limited way that I can. And I'm mm -hmm. going to use my padded ghost hand to scratch away at this wood until I can recapture what she, what she left me. And then ultimately he does. And I mean, mm -hmm. that's, that's mm -hmm. the end of the movie is that like, we never get to see what's written on the paper. Cause again, it doesn't yeah. fucking matter, but yeah, he recognizes that this this tiny artifact of who she was and being able to see something that she yeah, intentionally yeah. left behind is as good as it's going to get. And now it's yeah. time for him to move on. Yeah. And, and we should probably explain to uh, to anybody who's listening. I mean, hopefully everyone that's listening to this has has watched the movie already. But but like for anyone who hasn't, um, while he's kind of stuck in his house, uh, you know, watching over her. Um, and it's sort of unable to communicate with her or whatever he you know he spends a lot of time just like you know staring out the windows and stuff and he kind of discovers this other ghost 
at an adjacent house. It's kind of like the neighboring house. There's another kind of disembodied soul that's kind of stuck in there, you know, and they start communicating. They kind of like just sort of communicate uh, sort of almost telepathically or whatever, you know, and, and, and he says, you know, hello. And, you know, what, what are you doing? And stuff. And the other ghost says, um, I, I'm waiting for someone. And he says, who are you waiting for? And he says, I can't I don't remember. I don't, yeah, I can't yeah, remember. Like I don't know. Or, and yeah. you get the sense he says he's been there for so long waiting for some sort of closure or release or something to kind of set him free. And, uh, and, um, you know, and, and, and that, that's kind of part of the sadness of it, too, is that, is that there's this other kind of uh, version of him or whatever that, 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 that's been waiting around for so long for some sort of closure or release and that doesn't get it. And then when it gets to the point where, you know, I mean, like we mentioned it before, but eventually Rooney Mara moves out and then, uh, you know, a new family moves in and and then more and more people kind of move in into the house and eventually the house is just in complete disarray and they tear it down. So there's a, there's a, a point where they're tearing all the houses down and so the the main ghost, uh, the Casey Affleck ghost is just sort of standing in the the ruins of his sort of torn apart uh collapsed home and he sees the other ghost who's just standing there um you know and what what is the dialogue they exchange you know he says like uh, you know I guess they're not coming or something like that. Something to that effect. And then just sort of disappear. Like yeah, suddenly yeah, the other vanishes just, like, and the sheet, off, yeah. the sheet just falls to the ground. Like he just never really was able to get his yeah. closure and just kind of almost yeah. ceases to exist yeah. or something like. So something that I didn't realize until just this moment here and you kind of start to bring it up is that that's probably the most optimistic thing in this movie. I mean, optimistic if you choose to, believe in like the power of love right or what have you if you're a um, Huey lewis fan <laughs> um is the fact that like ghosts can give up yeah like, in the mythology of this world a ghost can just be like oh i guess they're not coming back like, fuck it Poof, I'm, I'm out of here i'm gone yeah and then casey affleck's ghost sticks around long enough that he literally cycles back through time yeah, goes yeah, back to like, like colonial times exactly, like pilgrim days yeah yeah like he ends up yeah. in this futuristic world and then he jumps off a building on top of the futuristic world and he seems to wake up in in like colonial times to see a family get murdered. Yeah, it seemed like it seemed kind of like caravans and 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 um, pioneers and stuff like that. Um, yeah, so, I thought. So I just mean the fact that the fact the fact that his ghost is willing to stick around long enough to yeah. travel through time in order to get this 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 thing. It just shows yeah, how much yeah. she meant to him because. By the time you end up in the future, like we don't we don't know how long him like M and C have been together. Sure. We don't know how long it's been since the house started to fall apart. We don't know any kind of sense of time. But by the time you end up in the future and then jumping back to the past, there is literally no question that he has spent more time grieving this woman than he ever spent with her. Yeah. And that yeah. she has still pulled him. He's seen like the entire experience of time that could possibly exist on that part of planet right. Earth. And the only thing that he cares about is getting back to her. And that's incredibly powerful it's very romantic in a way you that's know? what i'm saying i don't right? want to sound cheesy i don't want to sound corny when i talk about it's it but fine, it's, it's incredibly <laughs> romantic that that this 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 person this entity let, let, let's say i don't know how much of your like intelligence or intellect or memory or whatever you retain necessarily after you die quote unquote according to the mythology of this film anyway but the fact that this being you know this energy this entity or whatever is still so connected to this other person that they literally turn away from sort of like their own kind of peace or, or, or ascension or 
I'm not sure if that glowing door was supposed to represent kind of like heaven or the afterlife or, or if it was just literally supposed to represent like a peace or or an ending to sort of like, you know, consciousness. Or whatever. But whatever it was, and, um, I mean, it's an option the, that he yeah, turns down. He That's turns the down the option because he can't stand the idea of like not being with her or connecting to her or experiencing it with her together. Um, it's really interesting. Um, I, I have so many things to say. I'm not sure what 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 uh, what what. I wanted to to comment on what you were saying, but I, I feel like I just want to in, in interject like a little uh, as an aside. Uh, I read that the 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 next door neighbor ghost, like the sort of little strange yeah. ghost person living next door, was actually played by the director David Lowry. Oh, okay. It was sort of like his little director cameo, and it's interesting because after seeing the film at Lightbox, you know, after after walking out of it, I I remember thinking like, well, that was really different and fascinating and and kind of original and 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 i thought how come i haven't heard of this david lowry guy before i thought you know i i i've never heard i mean i'm pretty in tune with like contemporary yeah. directors and so forth but i thought i you know i've never heard of this guy before so i immediately whipped out my phone and imdb'd him and thought well you know what's what's the last thing he's done what's the big thing that he's done that's known for yeah, it was, it was very yeah dragon, was right? very <laughs> surprised to find out that it was pete's dragon the big cgi laden Hollywood production Disney reboot of Pete's like, Dragon, yeah. yeah, which which you know Just in like all the epitome of soullessness. <laughs> yeah, like, but, like, but in all fairness, in all fairness, um, I, I have not seen that film, uh, and 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 when it was in theaters, didn't really have any desire to see it. But but I have read reviews of it, and I think I listened to like a Mark Kermode YouTube video or whatever, and 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 everybody seems to say that it's actually pretty good. Like it's yeah. a pretty well done, fun, exciting. You know, kind of children's uh, yeah. fantasy vehicle. Yeah, it, I mean, um, it's basically if you're going to dig up the grave of an animated yeah. non-classic, then you could do a lot worse than yeah. Dragon. And yeah. I think I think he made one other film, like an earlier film, like I think it's sort of maybe kind of like urban gangstery kind of thing. I think which also had Rooney Mara and Casey Affleck in it or something. But but I but basically I'd never really heard of this guy before until I saw this film. But will now be kind of watching yeah. his career. Uh, you know. Uh, but what, to see what, he what, comes up with. what I love so much about knowing that, and I mean, this is IMDb trivia, which I always say take with a grain of salt, but um, like this movie was paid for with that money. With the Pete's with Dragon the money, money from Pete's Dragon. So it's yeah. just like, it's it's somebody somebody did the work to be able to afford to make the thing that they really wanted to make. Yeah, yeah. And like, that's so, I love that so much. And just knowing that like, this is just like such a, such a pure authentic expression of yeah. what he wanted to put out into the world. It seems it seems kind of like a deeply personal sort of offering, you know what I mean? Well, it I seems... mean it's based on his own <laughs> marriage, yeah, right? Yeah. It's it's hard to get more personal than that. There's that uh, kind of Sorry, can I just sure. so just just while we were talking about like trivia before we get back into the uh back into the, the meat and potatoes of it, one little detail that I I don't know how I feel about it, but I just thought it was curious is that when the two ghosts are interacting with each other, mm -hmm. they get closed captioning. Yeah, like, I, I always watch movies with closed captioning on. I have to keep the volume down to make sure yeah. I don't wake up my kids. But uh, but the ghosts in their nonverbal communication yeah. get closed captioning. Later on, the Spanish family does not. You have yeah, no idea what the fuck that's you're interesting. Saying. That's interesting. Um, I, that's why I was saying it's almost like they're communicating like telepathically or something. They're not really physically speaking to one another, but they somehow are able to communicate or at least feel what each other yeah. is feeling or thinking or whatever. Um. I feel like there's about a million threads and tangents here because uh, I because I I wanted to say something about the you know the Spanish family and and the and the the, the world's most horrible party guests and stuff like that, but also um, with regard to what you're saying about the this movie being paid for with the Pete's Dragon money, I, there's this kind of interesting um, 
uh, method that certain directors that kind of skirt the line between, you know, being sort of big bankable kind of Hollywood directors and, you know, our art, artsy independent directors kind of is like it's kind of like the Guillermo del Toro system is kind of what I call it, or like the del Toro method where basically uh, Guillermo del Toro, you know, would make like a like a Hellboy or a Pacific Rim or something yeah. like that. Right. And then take the money that he made. Uh, that he got for doing that to make like a devil's backbone or a pan's labyrinth or a shape of water. Yeah. It's like, it's like like one for you, one, like one for them, one for me is basically what what it always reminds me of is that very like self-aware moment in Jay and Silent Bob strike back where Ben Affleck is like yelling at Matt Damon. He's like, first you do, or, or maybe it's the other way around. He's like, first you do the safe picture then you do the artsy picture yeah, like yeah. he's like telling him how to do your career and like, yeah, like this is alternate like you pay your bills and then you take care of you you but pay your bills and then you take care of you some people literally function this way indefinitely though like Guillermo del Toro is the perfect example you know because you know he'll do a Hellboy and then he'll do like a Pan's Labyrinth and then, then he'll he do does. like a Hellboy 2 and, and then do like a Crimson Peak or, or a Pacific Rim and then a Shape of Water or whatever. And, and can actually just kind of function like indefinitely yeah. with this system you know it's great um, whereas like, mean, like a guy like David Lynch is just like struggling to get financing <laughs> to make some like like small like you know independent yeah. film or you know um, I, I guess I, I want to say more about the the time shift and the you know and, the, and stuff like that but I, but, but I, I guess before we get into the sort of like latter half of the film we should maybe talk a little bit about the um the Spanish family sequence and the and the and the horrible party guest sequence I thought it was really interesting that uh, the the first uh, you know half hour of the film or whatever is extremely still in terms of uh, camera movement and editing. I, I almost felt like the, the stillness itself was like a character in the movie, almost just like the room tone, just the the the, the very still. Like like all the camera shots are pretty much like tripoded, and everything is extremely still, like almost like a Jim Jarmusch film. Like there's hardly any sort of camera movement or anything. Yeah, and, and the- then. Yeah, and I mean the music is very like soft. It's very ambient, very yeah. orchestral, like very much in. Yeah. Uh, like, I mean, it's so effective when you see yeah. the car crash that you're yeah. just like, okay, well, this is a typical day, and it's a typical day that now it, that yeah. now includes the death of the person you've sure. been following all along. Like everything seems very like serene, even when it's tragic. Yeah, kind of like Terrence Malick saw Thin Red Line, where where you have like a beautiful shot of like you know this long grass like blowing in the wind, you know, and then suddenly all these like military troops start like walking through with their guns and you know machine guns and stuff like that and grenades and stuff and uh but it's just sort of like in there with everything else you know it's like there or, or like in blue velvet like how there's uh all those beautiful serene shots of the neighborhood and firemen dri- driving by waving at children and stuff and in, in, in the bushes but it kind of pushes further and further into the bushes you see all these insects fighting and digging away at each other all these cockroaches and stuff like biting each other and stuff under the surface yeah it's 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 very fascinating i just completely lost my train of thought. oh and then you're gonna say like that the uh yeah, and then when we get to the Spanish family and things are more chaotic, they're more... Yeah, well, I, the, it's interesting because... Um, oh, yeah, and just about the music, too. A note, a note about the music that you mentioned is, is the musical score is very interesting, especially in the first part of the movie, because it's it's very ambiguous and unclear like what kind of emotion the score is trying to convey because at times it seems very sinister and very... Um, almost like horror movie like like at time, like like when they're hearing noises in the house and getting up in the night to check to see if there's anybody in the house and stuff um it, it seems very sinister but then it, but then that same kind of music in a different context depending on what the scene is can seem kind of serene or kind of melancholy or kind of longing it's it's almost like the music itself is just as ambiguous as the images that you're seeing 
and the dialogue that you're hearing. Everything is very kind of vague and open to interpretation. But yeah, the, the thing that I thought was interesting just formally, like structurally, is it when the Spanish family finally moves into that? Like, like okay, Rooney Mara eventually moves out of the house. You know, eventually she just can't live there anymore right. in the environment that they coexisted in. So she moves out, and the Spanish family moves in, and 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 almost immediately, like with the arrival of the Spanish family, suddenly the actual physical structure of the film changes. Like, there's a lot more camera movement and a lot more like push-ins and and pans and sort yeah. of uh, you know, um, there's a lot more motion, you know, in the film, and 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 this also kind of. Uh, accompanies his kind of uh, anger or aggression um you know because when she's gone there's these new people there these kind of imposters yeah. or whatever in his eyes or whatever he starts becoming himself more aggressive and and uh throwing plates and you know making lights short yeah. out and and just kind of becoming more of a malevolent force you know as opposed to this kind of benign benevolent kind of presence like watching over yeah. you know Rooney Mara suddenly he's He's become this kind of, uh, you know, traditional kind of poltergeist type ghost, you know, where he's actually disruptive and frightening. Even when he was living there, it was a very serene space. I mean, there was there were moments of arguments and things like that. But I mean, it, it was all scored with this sort of orchestral uh, ambient sort of music. Everything was it was chill, for lack of a better word. Right. Chilling. And, and so, I mean, that's that's the tone that that house took on for him. So then for the. The actual, like, ambiance and the actual, like, feeling of that house, like, he, I don't know exactly what that ghost is feeling. Um, I mean, we get an idea a bit, a little bit later, but, you know, he's, he's clearly feeling longing. Yeah. He's feeling sadness. So then to have somebody not just come in and disrupt that space and not just claim that space, but to claim that space and to be loud and chaotic in yeah. a way that, I mean, only... Because there's chi- children there Yeah, now. there's children, right? And, I mean, like, it's, it's an entirely different... It's an entirely mm-hmm. different thing. So then he ends up trying to just like put it back the way it was. He throws plates. He throws a temper tantrum. He just he he so desperately wants something other than this because this yeah. is chaos. Like he we don't know how like I've I've said before we don't know exactly what sort of time dilation we're dealing with here. Yeah. But like to go from the the slow methodical grief to then absolutely nothing. Yeah. To the fucking shit show of having yeah, a bunch yeah. of children running around. Like you absolutely understand why he gets and 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 the so fact they're old. Spanish, like they're they're speaking a language that he doesn't even understand, or at least yeah. I'm assuming he doesn't understand. I mean, I suppose there's a chance yeah. that character could have understood Spanish, but I mean, there's sort of not not only is there sort of a foreign presence in the house, just in terms of the fact that it's not her and it's not them, like him with her, but like literally a foreign presence in the house, uh, speaking a different language, like from a different culture yeah. that, that that may not make any sense to him. If he doesn't know how to speak the language, he might not even be able to comprehend what they're even talking about. Yeah. You know, so which would just give him an even further sense of displacement sure. in the environment. Yeah, I mean, like, there's no. It's not a coincidence that I mean, the main song that gets played in this movie is mm-hmm. called "I Get Overwhelmed." Yeah, by yeah. Dark Rooms, and I mean that's such a. I mean, you've brought it up before when he when uh, when C plays the song for M. Yeah. And you know, he seems to be like, "Listen, like I know that I'm going through a lot. I've maybe been distant from you, but like this is the this is yeah. a physical manifestation of everything that I'm feeling right now. I've put it into music." And then to have her listen to it and try. Like yeah. she genuinely tries to engage with it. But then she becomes overwhelmed by it. And then she's just kind of like, "Okay, I can't deal with this right now." Like that's yeah. like that like, well, as as a as a an artist myself, like as a musician and a writer and stuff, like I, I mean, I understand how completely devastating it is to work on something for a long time that you really care about, whether it's like a, a play or a short story, or whatever, or a, a song. 
and to play it for someone or read it to someone over and have them just yeah. kind of oh yeah or like walk away or oh you know cool or yeah. you know just just to, just to, to yeah. see that it doesn't connect in the way that, that you were hoping it would yeah. or at least not with that person can be really devastating especially if it's someone you really care about like a partner or a family yeah. member or something that you really are hoping you know will yeah. kind of get it and they just don't that, yeah. that can also be very alienating yeah. and, and uh, overwhelming oh absolutely and I think I mean I, I think that now would actually be probably now that we're talking about it would probably be the best time to introduce this is uh, I'm very excited um, because a, a good friend of mine is uh, has very graciously volunteered uh, a cover of that song for uh, for us to include in this conversation. So if you can forgive, and you, you know, what? I'm not going to apologize because it's fucking great. Um, yeah, That's super uh, cool. So my my very good friend Shiloh Polly is going to take a couple minutes and and give you an idea of what that song sounds like, and hopefully that'll help get you exactly into the mood of exactly what we're talking about. Sense. 
No, it's just it's just super cool that she did that and that she took the time to do that. It, it is a really sort of strangely catchy, infectious song. You know, when I saw the film, when it very first starts playing and you, you, know, you hear all the you know sort of like the beats and the kind of auto tune kind of you know, and I remember thinking like, oh, what is this? You know, but then you know when you actually hear the vocals and the song, it's, it's actually really this delicate kind of um, melodic sort of melancholy, yeah. beautiful little piece. You know, and then and then my partner, I took I took my partner Taryn to go see the film when it came to London and played at the Highland. Uh, you know, and she had a similar reaction to me of just kind of like sitting through the whole film, just kind of like quietly weeping, you know, just so we both just sat there just sort of crying and looking at each other longingly. And, uh, and she as well, um, became fascinated with that song and said like, you know, it was stuck in her head. She couldn't get it out of her head. Like it was very, uh, it's very much like one of the centerpieces of the film is that song because it keeps coming back. You know, you kind of hear it at the beginning and then later it kind of flashes back to when he's recording it and then when he plays it for her. And then, you know, the song kind of permeates the film, you know, almost like an echo through the film. Yeah. And I mean, even just like the, the title of it, I get overwhelmed. Like that yeah. comes up so often. Like, mm-hmm. I, you know, mm-hmm. uh, Rooney Mara's character is overwhelmed by grief. Uh, C is overwhelmed when this new family tries to move in he gets overwhelmed again when that douche party is going on where yeah. everybody's trying to have a good time but that yeah. fucking asshole with the you ear. know you know who that fucking asshole is I, I thought it was really fascinating um is uh will oldham aka bonnie prince billy the the, the famous uh modern singer songwriter musician he's one of my favorite like contemporary sort of singer songwriters I remember reading an interview once with Nick Cave, and they said, uh, "You know, are there any contemporary singer-songwriters that you really respect or like?" And he and he cited Will Oldham as his favorite kind of uh, current songwriter. You know, I mean, the guy has such a huge output. I mean, the guy he's probably got like forty or fifty albums, and he's not even really that old. He's just so prolific and puts out so much stuff. And Nick Cave said something like, "You know, it's not like every single thing he does is great, but he's consistently put out so much great material." Uh, and in really good stuff that I just have to kind of mention him, and I myself uh, would say that you know I mean there's two albums specifically. Uh, the first one I really latched onto was called "I See a Darkness," which is a great album, and um, Johnny Cash wound up covering the song "I See a Darkness" for one of his American recordings albums with Rick Rubin, and then he did a later period album called um, "The Letting Go," uh, which is funny because it's actually one you know. When my partner and I first got together years ago, when we when we first were dating, it was kind of like something we listened to quite frequently, and it was kind of like the soundtrack to our relationship, like a decade ago or whatever. It was this beautiful album, "The Letting Go," that he recorded in Iceland, or with this um singer Don McCarthy, and it's just a beautiful, beautiful piece of work. But uh, but yeah, it's interesting because you know he's not. He actually started out as an actor when he was very young. He was in um, Mate Wan, the John Sayles movie Mate Wan, and and various other things. Uh, but then he kind of slowly, sort of, uh, you know, amalgamated into the, or transitioned into the world of music, uh, you know, and was in Palace, Palace Brothers, Palace Music, all that stuff. And then now he's like a Bonnie Prince Billy is kind of like his moniker. But but he pops up in movies every once in a while. He's in a lot of films by Kelly Reichardt. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. She's the woman who directed um, 
Old Joy, I think, is her first film, and he's like one of the main characters in it. And then she's done like uh, Wendy and Lucy and Meek's Cutoff and uh, Night Moves and um, uh, Certain Women, I think, is her newest one. Uh, and he, he usually pops up in films by her. But it, it's fascinating because, you know, this is a film that is largely very silent and doesn't have much dialogue in it. And the dialogue that it does have in it is quite minimal. And then suddenly, you know, kind of about halfway through the film, you're at the, the, the douche party scene, as you described it, where it looks like the house is being, you know, it looks like there's a bunch of university or college roommates that are, are renting the house or something like that. And they're just having these douchey parties where everyone's like drinking beer and smoking weed and stuff. And then you get this this Will Oldham cameo where he basically plays the most depressing uh, house guest, party guest yeah, like that you could ever the, imagine. The expression gets overused now, but like the idea of like, man, you must not be, or you must be a lot of fun at parties. Like that's all that was going through my yeah. head that like, this is that guy incarnate yeah. that just like, he showed up at a party, was doing the, hey, I'm the clever guy who's thought about things that you've never thought yeah. about before. He and was, just he bumming was, the fuck He's playing out that of card, everybody. but then he took it so far and was just <laughs> like, hey, every little loophole that you want to try to jump through to try to feel like maybe nihilism isn't yeah. the only reason, like isn't the only way of thinking, I'm going to get ahead of you on that and I'm going to drill into your head yeah. that nothing in life will ever matter. Except sometimes I like fucking like what a he's dick. like he's telling everybody their kids are gonna die. He's like you, your kids are gonna die. Your kids are gonna die. I hate to say it, but your kids yeah. are gonna die. Um, I, I that was a wake up call to me that scene though because I was like, is that me? Is that me at parties? I feel like that's me because because I'm I'm so misanthropic and nihilistic. <laughs> I'm just so so misanthropic and nihilistic that when True Detective season one first aired, you know. Uh, with Matthew McConaughey as Russ Cole, like every person I knew started messaging me and emailing me and calling me saying like, it's, it's you, like you're on the show. Like everything that comes out of his mouth is like something that I, you've said at some point. I mean, like I get it. <laughs> and I mean, it, it's interesting to have, I mean, like realistically this yeah. ghost C has probably not had a philosophical conversation like he was, he was clearly yeah. a guy who was in his own head. He was thinking about these sorts of things, but he probably hasn't heard anything like that elucidated yeah. in a while. He kind of reminded me of Patterson. Sound like a fucking dick, but <laughs> um, apparently I'm being self-loathing <laughs> in my choice of words today. But just like I can't, I can't actually remember how that party scene ends. Does he freak out again? Um, or I don't think kind so. Of jump forward? No, I think he, it's basically Will Oldham telling everyone that uh, their kids are going to die and everything they've ever cared about or loved or whatever is eventually going to wither away and become meaningless. And even like the most profound works of art, like Shakespeare and Mozart and stuff, are eventually, you know, going to be be forgotten and the sun's going to turn into red dwarf and swallow up the whole universe yeah. and everything that you ever that ever existed or meant anything is going to cease to exist. So, so, so imagine being a ghost who's yeah. maybe like been occupying this space for. Yeah. I mean, if we're being kind we'll say two, three years. Imagine what that would feel like to experience that and to hear yeah. somebody like saying these like that things everything's that meaningless if you do have any kind of like ability to yeah. tangibly think about things, that's not the right word. Yeah. But imagine hearing somebody say that and just like, oh, all that waiting forever that you're doing, that's going to count for fucking nothing. Yeah. And then he still does it. Yeah, that's what's so love amazing. exists. And this movie is yeah. so fucking romantic. Yeah, it's like that. It's like the tagline or is it like Bram Stoker's Dracula or something where it's like love conquers all or something like that. It's, <laughs> it's interesting because you were saying you don't remember how that scene ends. But I, th I think what happens is, you know, it, it pans up, I think, to to the light bulb that's above Will Oldham when he's doing that monologue, like in the kitchen, you know, and it kind of, I think maybe like the electricity kind of shorts out or wavers or something. And then it just smash cuts to like 
the light bulb's broken and it's like, you know, maybe months later or a right. year later or whatever. And that's when you see that the house has just been left in disarray and everything's kind of broken and trash and everything. But it, it's fascinating because that Will Oldham monologue, you know, about how everything's meaningless and so forth, actually kind of transitions into um, the, the, these whole sort of time shifts that we were talking about earlier. I think the film treats time and, and sort of time jumps and the relationships of time in a really interesting way uh, because, uh, you know, as we mentioned before, you know, you, you, you in very rapid succession, you know. Well, actually, we didn't actually mention this. Like, he, he, he uh, when the house is in disarray and there's no one left and nobody's living there, you know, he, he's standing in the living room empty and he, he having seen previously in the film Rooney Mara, um, write something down on a little piece of paper and stick it in this little, uh, you know, this little, this little hole in the wall, this little slot in the wall that she then paints over when she's painting the house, you know, when she's moving out, you know, she's painting the house for the next tenants, or whatever, you know, he, he drops down to his knees and he starts trying to scratch it or the wall, but because it's been painted over, you know, he has to kind of scrape and scrape and, and scratch, you know, and he just kind of breaks through the, the little barrier of paint, you know, and he starts, you know, just very, and it must be extremely difficult for someone in the spirit world to to actually tangibly affect actual matter, you know, in the real world. But 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 he actually manages to kind of grab hold of this little piece of paper, or whatever, and he's trying desperately to tug it out. And that's when the wrecking ball comes to the living room of the house and just smashes the house apart, you know. And so then you see in very rapid succession, you know, like, you know, him standing in the ruins of the house and then him standing in an empty field and then a construction site and then they're building this new building. And then he's wandering around in this sort of vacant office building with like eventually like board meetings taking place and stuff until he gets up to the roof. There's actually a really cool sort of fourth wall breaking kind of meta moment in there. I love those things. I used to hate them. Now I love them. Go figure. (laughs) But but there's a part earlier in the film when he goes over to the window and he looks over at the house next door and that's when he sees the ghost and the other ghost is kind of looking at him and he's looking at the ghost and you're not sure if it's like a mirror reflection or if they can see each other and the and the other ghost i forget if it's him or i think it's the other ghost just kind of raises his hand he's just looking straight out at him and he kind of raises his hand and kind of waves in in a in a weird way kind of like i can see you can you see me and then it mirrors that scene in a really interesting way because suddenly the camera's like outside of the window kind of almost like just floating in the air outside of the window of this high rise and you see the casey affleck goes walk right up to the window and he's staring right out at the camera like at us the viewer and he's just kind of staring with those kind of disembodied ghost eyes you know and he he raises his hand up and kind of waves Almost like as if he's seeing us saying like, hey, like I'm here. I can see you. Can you see me? But then it almost seems like he doesn't get a response. So he just sort of dejectedly puts his hand down and turns away. And that's when he walks up to the roof and you see this like super futuristic Blade Runner-esque, you know, like um, ghost in the shell kind of neo tokyo looking kind of cityscape yeah. with a all lot these of colored on, lights yeah. and everything it's very blade runner and 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 he just basically is like okay like i've waited long enough and he just sort of like allows himself to fall off the roof of the building and he and he, and he topples down you see him falling and falling and falling but then you know instead of like splattering on the ground or whatever suddenly you know he wakes up and it's like what like the 1700s or something like that or 16 or 1700s like you know, uh, caravan, pilgrim, time, right. you know, like uh, pioneer yeah. days. Oregon Trail, basically. But the passage of time is really interesting to me in this film because everything that follows from this point on, like like suddenly he's kind of in this field. It's the same place, obviously, where his house was, but but hundreds of years earlier. And these settlers have come, this family in a caravan with like, a, you know, this little girl and, you know, and stuff. And um, 
the way that time operates in the film kind of from this point on really reminded me of the ending of Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey when uh, Dave Bowman goes through the Stargate or whatever and there's the big trippy 15 minute long uh, Doug Trumbull sequence and then he winds up at that kind of odd like sort of way station kind of thing you know and and you know there's all those sequences in 2001 where it's kind of like you know he sort of like walks into the doorway of a room and sees this old man at a table but then suddenly the old man looks back and it's actually him like older and there's no one in the doorway and he like turns back to his meal and then he drops the glass and and then it's like an old man in bed looking at a guy in the other room has dropped the glass but then there's nobody in the other room and he's just lying in bed old like this it's very yeah, impressionistic I mean, the he, way yeah, the he, passage of time is he cycles back into his own timeline yeah and he starts to see himself as a ghost interacting that was the most amazing like kind of charlie kaufman-esque part i, I before we skip right over it, though I, I, it's worth mentioning too though that that all those little things that will oldham was talking about in his like misanthropic speech about how like um you know, all the great works of art and everything and music and Beethoven and Mozart, and everything's all going to be lost in time. But eventually after some big, great nuclear war or whatever, when people start rebuilding society again and, you know, he's talking about how, you know, somebody's going to be digging a fence post in the ground or somebody will just remember like the melody from, you know, like Beethoven's seventh or ninth or whatever. And, and, uh, you know, and it'll sort of continue on in, in a way. Yeah. And and it, it's interesting to note, and maybe this is a little heavy-handed or, or a little too convenient or something, but it's interesting to note that as as the ghost is kind of watching this pioneer family, their, their little girl who who eventually, you know, is is murdered in this kind of brutal way. But, but, but the little girl, it starts, it cuts, I think the scene starts with the father, like, digging a fence post, which is what Will Oldham was talking about in a speech. But the little girl is humming the tune i think of the song that you were talking about of the song that casey affleck yeah. would, would later go on to record and then um before you know the family is killed it, she 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 writes a little note like on a piece of paper and, and hides it under a rock or something like right. that you know so there's all these little mirroring elements of everything yeah you know that they were talking <sighs> about before although it was interesting that i thought that what they were doing with the the pioneer family was they were going to show you who built the house and that's not what happens. That's not really <laughs> so, like, what happens. Here's yeah. this pioneer family that happened to occupy the same space, and like yeah. maybe you think that this is the beginning of the history, but like no, you're just like watching people get instead they're fucked just up. slaughtered by like a group of <laughs> renegade Comanches or something like that. Or, yeah, uh, it was that was rough. <laughs> it, was it, it is rough. Merc- but, mercifully, it doesn't actually show the act- the family being slaughtered in real time. It just it just sort of cuts to no, but you they're, see, they're they're building a fire, and, or whatever. Yeah. Then he's watching them and they're dead. Then he's watching them and they're skeletons. Then he's watching them and they're literally rotting into the ground. Yeah. You know, um, so it's 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 very two thousand one ish in in its um, depiction of the passage of time, and then relatively quickly, kind of gets back up to you know him being in the house that they first moved. like like you actually yeah. see them come in to look at the house for the first time with a real yeah. estate agent well and and i mean that's where i mean something that's so cool about it is just he after all this time all of the time dilation and everything like i don't know if there's actually time after the after he jumps off the roof and all that but i mean at this point he's able to move through centuries yeah of just cuz he's alive the whole time i don't think he's actually jumping through time i think that he is awake and conscious Aware, the entire yeah. time but he is able to dilate that time until he gets to the important stuff yeah and yeah all, and suddenly it's almost like he was there watching when you know when uh you know the war of 1812 when world war Two happened and uh 
uh, emancipation and Lincoln and um, Hitler and everything, you know, yeah. all the way up, you know, the McCarthy trials and everything, all yeah. the way up to. But none of that when, matters. None of it matters to him. Because she's not there. Yeah, and the fact that the film doesn't show any of that stuff, I mean, well, obviously it would be kind of redundant to, to do so or cost too much money, but still, the <laughs> fact that, that none of that stuff is important to him. The yeah, fact this that isn't Forrest Gump. This, yeah, this is a guy that's just stood there in the same spot for the last, like, two or three hundred years, but it, it doesn't matter, like, it doesn't show, you know, World War One or World War Two, because, like, none of that actually matters to this character. All that matters is getting back to the point where the two of them look at the house and decide that they want to live there and move into yeah. the house and stuff because he's just like right. so desperately trying to connect right. again. And then, and then, I mean, it's not until very close to the end that we get that like really, that really like painful reveal that possibly even the night before he died, he said, okay, I'm fine. We can leave. Like, I know it's important to you. It's more important to me for you to be happy than for me to occupy the space that I've been obsessed with living in. And like he was ready. Yeah. He, he had emotionally let go yeah, and then he was gonna do it for her because they hadn't done it. He ended up stuck. Yeah, I don't. It's not even stuck because he chose to be there, right? Yeah, but he ended up living there for literally ever. <laughs> well, it's kind of <laughs> to interesting. The point that time turned back in on it. You know, it's it's weird because like you you wonder if time works in this sort of. I mean, humans have a very linear kind of rigid, uh, you know, sort of interpretation of time that it's this kind of linear construct that operates from left to right a to z like sort of you know like reading a book or something but you wonder in a sense like if you look at time as more like a circle or a or a fixed sort of point where where everything just kind of changes and shifts around itself or like you know or that kind of like true detective time is a flat circle thing where ev- everything that's ever happened is just kind of always playing out kind of at the same time at the same point you know like you know it's interesting because the fact that he was so connected to the house, like, you know, as as a human, when he was alive, he felt this strange connection to the house, you know, like he, he felt kind of at home there and like he didn't want to leave there. And you wonder if it's almost like echoes like reverse reverb, you know, I, I don't are you a musician? I don't know if you're a musician or not, like the, not in any kind of way that I would call myself well, the, one. Well, the way the way reverse reverb works is, you know, I mean, like regular reverb is obviously when there's sort of an echo or a delay on, on something like when you're in a large hall or something like that. But there's a cool effect that, that you can do where like if you flip the tape, I mean, you can do it digitally now, but originally if you flip the tape backwards, you put the reverb on backwards, then then you get this effect where it's almost like before something happens, you hear the reverb already kind of in reverse building up to something. So you kind of have this like, like snapback kind of feeling. And it's almost like I wonder in a sense if time isn't like sort of a left to right linear kind of thing. Like almost like is he so connected to the house in a sense because he does wind up there for so long and stuck there for so long and he becomes part of that environment for so long it's almost like time kind of almost going backwards there would be that kind of echo or that reverb or that kind of slight delay working kind of backwards so i wonder if that's even maybe the reason why when he first walked into the place he felt kind of uh, at home there or or connected to that place because even though he didn't know it at that point he would wind up being there for so long people have that theory sometimes they talk about it in in ghost stories or ghost novels or horror movies or whatever of the idea of like like a physical structure like a house or a building or whatever, actually somehow retaining some of the energy yeah. or, or being able to, the, the memory of things that happen. You know, this, this, this is a good a general tenet of all ghost stories is the idea that like 
this thing happened in this house and even though these people like the shining for example you know this stuff has happened here and even though it's 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 gone it's done now and it's happened years ago the echoes and it's memories the of this yeah. thing is in, is in the structure and so i almost wonder if like he himself is kind of part of that structure and so even though before even before he dies even before it happens there's this kind of reverse reverb this yeah. reverse echo that he is connected to that structure yeah and it, it's kind of interesting i wonder if the uh it's the piano really it's not even the house it's the piano because the piano is there it's yeah. what draws his eye in the first place you know it's the only thing that he talks about to the real estate agent much yeah. to the chagrin of the very yeah, she's just not having he's trying to joke around and she's just not having any. she's just yeah she's having a day or she's just seen enough houses with this dick that she's tired of <laughs> dealing with him but then you know when when ghosts see God, that sounds like a stupid thing to say. Um, but when the ghost like interacts with, I guess, present day C and M, like it's through the piano, it's through something dropping onto the piano. Like it's just, there's yeah. something there. And it's, yeah, he uses, he uses the piano. Like first it just seems like this benign kind of thing. Like, oh, cool. There's a piano here. Is it still work? Is it in tune? Does it come with the house? You know? And she's kind of like, oh, whatever. Yeah, sure. I don't care. <laughs> but then, but then it becomes like this, this important tool of communication because, at the beginning of the film, you know, they're, they're sleeping at night and, and you hear this kind of thud on the piano yeah. keys and they think like, you know, maybe someone's in the house or something. They get up and turn the lights on. There's no one there. But then later at the end of the film, when he's like recycled through time again and he's actually watching the two of them existing in the house together, the only way he knows to try to communicate with them or the best way he thinks he can try to kind of alert himself to the fact that he's there is by sort of smashing yeah. on the piano keys. But of course, the actual him in the real world doesn't doesn't actually yeah. draw the connection that it's him because right. you know he's not dead at well, that and point that, that's something that we've seen him do before like the most emotionally vulnerable that he allows himself to be is by putting headphones onto his wife's head to show this is who i am this is what i've been working on this is something that i created yeah. and i want to I mean, share that's, it that's you. his language right that's that's the way that he shares who he is with the world yeah Okay, so, I mean, I feel like we've gone through a bunch. Um, you had mentioned that you wanted to say something about the end before we before we wrap this up. Oh, I, I, I just thought, I, I think it's interesting, um, you know, at the end, when, when we get to the point where, you know, because time's moving in such a strange way in this film, you know, I mean, you know, he, you know, he dies and he goes all the way to kind of like the end of time for himself and then goes back to the beginning and then kind of cycles through the whole thing again to the point where, you know, he sees himself and uh, Rooney Mara move into the house and, and they're living there. And then there's this kind of strange overlap of him, uh, you know, communicating with them, banging on the piano and things like that. And you realize that all of the things in the beginning of the film that were sort of like the traditional horror tropes, like the John Carpenter tropes, you know, of like, you know, things that go bump in the night kind of thing it was actually just him desperately attempting to kind of communicate with them. Um, you know, it's cool in a cyclic kind of way that it comes back full circle like that. But the thing that I thought was really fascinating, the thing that really amused me is, uh, you know, there's that thing in the end where that sort of that song comes out, that sort of pulsing kind of, you know, beat, you know, that sort of, you know, kind of, and, uh, and the whole climax of the movie kind of plays out to this, this big sequence with this kind of throbbing drum beat, you know, and, and he gets to the point where he's watching them live together and everything, you know, once again from the other perspective and watching it all from this kind of like omnipresent kind of perspective, whatever. But he gets to the point where, you know, he dies in the car accident again and then comes back as a ghost in the house. So then he, as a ghost, is watching 
himself as a ghost right. watch himself as a live person and it's like he's seeing himself now all over again as a ghost right. observing that you know and it, it's like you get the, the feeling it's like you know looking you know when you hold a mirror up to a mirror and you just see like this infinite uh, you know number of reflections just kind of go on forever uh like infinity rooms or whatever um and uh and i thought that was very charlie kaufman-esque i thought one, once it hit that point because it's kind of got that cool you know, drum beat, that 808 kind of drum beat kind of going in the end. And, um, you know, and it gets to the point where, you know, you know, he's, he's observing himself and then he observes himself die and come back as a ghost again. And there's this kind of tr- third layer to everything. There's this triple layer because the, or- the original layer that he was watching has now duplicated itself. And then right. he's now on this. Like, and you get the feeling this could just go on forever like this. And, uh, you know, it could be just like, you know, hun- hundreds of layers of ghosts watching yeah. hundreds of layers of ghosts unaware of each other. And, uh, and and I remember thinking, like, okay, th- th- this has now hit this kind of Charlie Kaufman level of absurdity. And then I started thinking about how th- there's all these cynical people out there, like Robert McKee type people, you know, who, who say, oh, there's only a limited amount of original ideas for stories and everything that's ever happened since that, since Shakespeare has just been variations on the same theme. And people say, like, oh, there's only seven archetypal ideas for stories you know there's like the hero's journey or there's the revenge tale, you know and and every work that comes out is just a variation on that and to and, and to a large extent i think that's true just because of people's general kind of lack of imagination i think most of the films and books and, and so forth that come out do kind of follow familiar frameworks or they say you know oh this is a variation on the film noir tale or the double indemnity or this is the the hero's journey like star wars matrix lord of the rings thing or but i i think i i totally disagree i i, I wholeheartedly disagree with the people that say that it's impossible to come up with an original or new idea anymore because all you have to do basically is look at the work of Charlie Kaufman. You know I mean? You just, you just have to look at being John Malkovich or, uh, you know, uh, adaptation or Anomalisa or basically Synecdoche, New York probably is the best example. Uh, and to say, yes, it is still possible to come up with a completely original work. It's not necessarily one that's going to be accessible or one that people are going to, the general public is going to be able to latch onto without any difficulty. But I mean, all you have to do is, you know, you look at David Lynch, uh, Mulholland Drive or Lost Highway or something like that. I mean, there there are people out there that are um, still creating and delivering original work. And I would say that this film is is a a good, if like, albeit minimalist example of that, because you know the ghost story is such a traditional trope of you know storytelling not even just western storytelling but but just all over the world you know the ghost story like j-horror and everything every every sort of country and culture has their own kind of interpretation of the ghost story but this what this film does is it kind of takes that and then just sort of turns it inside out and then kind of elongates it infinitely you know i mean it, it is a film that deals with familiar tropes and images and, and concepts in a way that's like, seems completely fresh and new and almost naive in a sense. Like it, it seems like, you know, it's examining uh, something very familiar in a way that is completely kind of original and different, which is, which is one of the things that I really liked about it. Yeah. And I mean, I, I talk often about how, egregiously like poorly read I am when it comes to watching movies but I love seeing this sort of thing where I I genuinely feel like I'm seeing something I haven't seen before even though it starts off from a point where 
I feel like I've seen it in children's coloring books a yeah. million times before. It springboards from a familiar place yeah. into something yeah. totally kind of new and different. So, Jeremy, we'll wrap this up the same way that, that we always do. I'm pretty sure I know the answer to at least the first question, but on your own Netflix profile, does this movie get a thumbs up or a thumbs down? And then if I could invite you to tell me an MVP that you would like to pick from the movie. I'm giving it a, a ghostly, <laughs> like, translucent <laughs> thumbs up. You did. A big thumbs up. Um, we haven't talked about the ending of the movie, though. Like We haven't, we haven't discussed the, oh, fuck, the, the final thought, moments of the film. Your, like, I thought that was your... I thought um, that was your 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 talking about the final moments was well earlier. well I mean I mean I, I I guess we don't have to we could leave it for a surprise for all, for all the the the, the confused listeners who have have uh, gone through this whole podcast without actually watching the film I always wonder if people do that like when you listen to a commentary track on a movie the director is always like uh you know it's like Roman Polanski or Terry Gilliam or whoever you know it's like they're always like uh so I, I'm assuming that if you're listening to this commentary track you've already watched the film but you know that there's got to be like somebody out there that hasn't you know like just somebody is just like oh a commentary track i'll put this on you know and they've never seen the film before so i'm hoping that anybody who's listening to this and who's made it to like the two hour mark of this podcast or whatever has actually seen the, the the ending of the film but we should probably just talk about the ending of the film where um you know the casey affleck ghost gets to the point where you know um Rooney Mars moved out of the house and all and all the other families have come and gone and the douchey party guests and everything and the house is trash and in disarray and it's getting it's at that point where he knows that the wrecking ball is about to come and 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 decimate the house and at which point he will just have to stand around for another hundred or two years or whatever and then go back in time and repeat <laughs> the whole thing over again so with great determination uh, he drops down one one last time and and just starts working away at that uh, paint uh, you know painted chunk of wall that that he almost retrieved the uh, the note from uh, earlier on in the film and and this time thankfully he successfully manages to pull out this little rumpled up piece of paper yep. and uh, and he stands up and he has it in his hands and he unfolds it and he looks at what it says and without you ever being privy to what it says or showing you what's written on the piece of paper or whatever he uh, like the ghost earlier on in the film just disappears like he just suddenly vanishes and the the white sheet falls to the ground very very much like obi-wan kenobi's death in star wars um but but you you understand that that when he reads the words that she wrote whatever she wrote uh, has released him you know yeah. it's it's uh and it's totally purposely ambiguous and up for debate what was on there i mean uh, I, I, the first thing that ran through my head was maybe that it said i love you or i miss you or something like that but like you said earlier literally it could have been like a grocery list we don't yeah. know what it is but whatever it is that was on that little piece of paper she hid in the wall was the thing that released him that it, made him feel like i can go now it was Whatever it was, it was something that gave him something that he didn't have before, yeah. right? Like he, and I mean, there was novelty in watching her grieve, I'm sure, but that was such a painful experience, I'm sure, for him to, yeah. I mean, we're assuming that this, I mean, we actually, sorry, we know that the ghost is capable of emotion because it freaks out. Like we know it's it's capable of becoming overwhelmed. Um, we, we know that the ghost is capable of having bad moods. Yeah. Um, you know, ghosts can get testy. It's kind of the it's kind of their bag. Um, but it was it was something something new. It was something that I think after literal centuries, there was enough awareness that if I can have 
one moment that I haven't had before and see one thing that nobody has ever been able to appreciate before because anybody stumbling across one of let's say hypothetically she's been leaving these notes every time she moves an apartment or moves a house she's been leaving these notes anybody coming across it is not going to appreciate it this was him in this moment being somebody in this incredibly unique situation of occupying that space after she had left it and being able to actually understand in that moment what it meant and at that point for him it was this is the best, like, this is the most that I can hope for. It's really profound and really epic and really cathartic. And it's strange to say that because you as a viewer have no idea what it says. Like you are not given that information. You're not privy to that information. And you see the ghost with the paper in his hand, you see him open up the paper and look at it and then just climactically, cathartically vanish. He'll just, just disappear and the cloth just falls to the ground and you don't know what it says. But I, I feel like, sorry, I just, because I thought of it as you were describing it. It's also, it's, it's interesting to me that it's not, it's not like there's a square of light that opens up beneath him and he drops into it. It's just that. So we don't know if he's actually getting a chance to like move on into that ethereal realm. Yeah. I could say like, I hate you (laughs) cause they fuck you. No, I just, I just mean in terms of like the, the very limited mythology that gets built, we don't actually know if he's going on to some higher plane or if it's just like, okay, that's it. I'm done. Like the if, door, if the door does closed. open, though. The door of the house does burst open kind of uh, uh, okay. uh, triumphantly or whatever. Because, um, you know, early, earlier on in the film when he's in the hospital and he's wandering through the corridors and he sees the exit sign and he, and he follows the exit sign to the end of the corridor and that sort of, uh, you know, brilliant sort of rectangle of light opens up that it, it seems like he could step through if he wants to. It's interesting in the end. It's not, it's not exactly the same, but as he kind of pulls the paper out of the wall and is about to kind of open up the paper and read it, um, the front door of the house just sort of bursts open and and, and sort of like a, a beam of light from outside because it's probably like noon right. or something kind of comes into the house. Like it, it's almost like symbolically, and sometimes I feel corny kind of like putting these kind of things into words but because it's so, it's so visually based. But, um, but it kind of seems like in a sense, this, he, he's kind of, confronted at the same crossroads it kind of seems like when the door opens it kind of seems like he has a second chance to kind of ascend or or to go through metaphorically to go through even though he doesn't physically walk through the door but when when he looks at the thing i feel like because of her connection to that house and the fact that it's a house that they lived in together that whatever she wrote on that piece of paper probably had to do with him or them or her thoughts about them or together or losing him or her love for him or whatever I feel like the most logical kind of interpretation of what it said was maybe I love you or I miss you or something like that. But it very well could have just been like, fuck you for leaving me. Right, you yeah. know, like, I mean, there's no, it, it's really anyone's guess yeah. what that paper said, but I whatever mean, it was, was enough to set him free. Yeah. It's playing the lost in translation game where like, ultimately it doesn't, yeah. it doesn't matter. Yeah. You have to go in there with like pro tool or, you know, like final cut or something like really, really, you know, crank up the, yeah. the, the levels of, I, I have to say, um, just on a personal level that, that, that I really kind of liked that house. You know I mean? I mean, she seemed to kind of be freaked out by it and want to leave, but, but it sort of had this rustic charm, you know, it kind of seemed to almost be sort of out in the middle of nowhere. Like it just kind of, it's sort of out sort of in this field, like in the country or something. And, uh, you know, and it was sort of simple and, and minimal and like, it wasn't like a huge house. It didn't seem, it was like, it seemed like a bungalow. They didn't right. have like all these different layers, but there's something very cozy, and homey about it and and it really reminded me the whole um 
the look of the house and the art, especially in the first 15 minutes of the movie, um, when you kind of see her walking outside and taking garbage out to the curb and stuff like that, or the scene where, where it shows the accident, where, where the car is just sort of steaming on the side of the street. So really reminded me of the photographs of Gregory Crudson. I'm not sure if you are. Are you familiar with Gregory Crudson? He's this really interesting photographer, American, I think, who does these big, weird tableaus that seem to kind of almost maybe take place like in like kind of New England or something. They, 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 they really recall like Stephen King novels or something there or, or, or David Lynch's Blue Velvet or something where they're like these strange tableaus that that always take place in, in these kind of odd suburbias, you know, kind of maybe in the middle of the night. Like there might be just sort of like this strange street that's kind of lit by street lights, and there'll be all these like little quaint little houses and there'll be like sort of like a naked pregnant woman who's wandered out into the middle of the street in the middle of the night. And there's this like, you know, inexplicable beam of light kind of coming down from above, like looking down at her as almost as if it's like maybe like a UFO or something like that. So many things like that. Like they'll just be like, uh, like a woman, you know, in her living room and the living room's like flooded with water and she's just floating in the water with her eyes closed in like a nightgown or like a guy who's like, ripped all the carpet up in his bedroom and he's dug down through the the layers of wood in his floor and he's like reaching down into the beneath the house you know to to to, to retrieve some unknown object or something and and they're all they're all very spooky and serene and kind of in one hand sort of commonplace and in another hand very fantastical and they all have a very specific kind of visual palette and and it it, it really reminded me like the kind of look and feel of this sort of like this little house and uh, the kind of serenity of the surrounding area and just the wind through the trees and the clouds and stuff like very, very much reminded me of, uh, of Gregory Crudson's nice. work. Uh, let's, let's go back to that question that I asked before <laughs> okay. and uh, yeah, thumbs up or thumbs down and hit me with an MVP and we'll, uh, we'll get out of here. Okay. Um, I'm going with a very, Ghostly. Ghostly translucent. <laughs> thumbs up for the movie. Um, thumbs up in spite of myself. Like I said, you know, when I when I when I heard, uh, you know, the premise of this film and, and, and saw like a little teaser trailer and stuff, I thought this could potentially be the most pretentious, you know, <laughs> film that's ever been made. I, I thought it's the kind of thing where if it doesn't work, like, you know, conceptually, like if, if, if you, t- you took a stab at this and it didn't work. It would just be awful. Like it would just be like the the most ridiculous, shitty thing. Um, but David Lowry, much to his credit, you know, uh, came up with this utterly ridiculous, uh, you know, concept and and s- stayed true to his conviction and uh, and delivered like a very serious, sobering, melancholy, somber, ponderous, uh, moving you know meditation on 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 everything from from loss and bereavement and grief to love and and connectedness and uh um and 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 a sense of place and home and uh time and you know i mean it, it deals with so many abstract concepts but these are concepts that we all kind of live in and deal with you know like uh you know the sense of of time and and connectedness and um you know, uh, love and comfort and home and and uh, loss and everything. I mean, these are these are things that are very prevalent in, in all of our lives at one point or another. But they're all all things that we don't really like to think about or talk about or or focus on because they're kind of frightening and and, sure. and abstract and stuff like that. And this is a film that just wholeheartedly 
tackles all of these issues and concepts in a way that's very uh, accessible and identifiable. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think anybody, even a child watching this movie could under could understand the feelings and emotions that are sure. being dealt with in this film. Uh, so, yeah, I'm going to give I'm going to give it a thumbs up in spite of myself. <laughs> Surprising thumbs up uh, for David Lowry and, and company. Would David Lowry then be your MVP or did you want to pick somebody else? Um, I think I'm going to go really esoteric here. And, and, and my MVP this time is, is just going to be like stillness and like the atmosphere of the film. This sounds super pretentious. I apologize. <laughs> I, I love that. So I much apologize. <laughs> I apologize to any cynics that are listening to this right now because this sounds like the most like, you know, up my own ass pretentious answer <laughs> I could say. But 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 literally this film that like the things that stuck out for me the most about this film were like the ambiguity of the musical score like the fact that this pervasive kind of underlying score you know like kind of kind of sticks through the whole the whole piece and you can never really tell if it's sinister or if it's melancholy or if it's sad or if it's frightening and same with just the atmosphere of the film you know i mean there's just there's the stillness of it the 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 room tone the background sounds just the the wind moving through trees the sound of like you know crickets at night just the sort of or even the slowness of the camera shots i'm gonna just give my mvp to the general kind of like atmosphere of the piece, which I guess was designed and orchestrated oh, by yeah. David Lowry, so no, so maybe yeah. he's kind of towering over this whole no. thing. But but yeah, just just the just the general sense of sort of minimalist kind of haunting atmospherics and um, sort of quietness and ponderousness of the film, I think, is mm-hmm. my MVP because you know even though all the actors did great and the and the and the composer and the director and everything like that, the thing that really sticks out for me about this film is just literally the feeling you know of watching it just the just the the sounds the the tones the little bits of score the the cinematography the just the all the little elements that come combine together to, to yeah. make up whatever the hell this thing was <laughs> right <laughs> okay for me i'm gonna say thumbs up absolutely i do want to issue like the caveat that i was resentful about watching this movie for about the first half hour. Like I was just like, Jeremy, who the fuck do you think <laughs> you are making me watch this? Like yeah. like it's it's so slow. It's so ponderous at the beginning. You know, there's there was a moment at which like when you're waiting for for uh for C to C? Yes, C. I guess. Do you Wait, think that stands for Casey and Mara or is it something I entirely different? So. I don't know. It doesn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> like when he was, when I was waiting for him to sit up, I honestly thought that my internet went down because like I was it just, just like, froze I'm frame waiting or for something to goddamn happen. And then yeah. the pie scene. And then it's just like, really that's the cutoff point. Once, once you're past the pie scene, yeah. then you're in the shit and it's so good. It's, yeah. and I mean, you have, you have to be in that space to appreciate like, how much time things actually take and the, the the ways that that C experiences time in different ways like you have to go through that but i also yeah. recognize that like this is netflix if you get bored you have the option to stop yeah. with a ghost story you can just flip please, to riverdale if you want to please don't stop yeah exactly don't switch over to riverdale yeah. i feel like this is a film that rewards patience Absolutely. i feel like 
I feel like it establishes its kind of tone and atmosphere specifically with like these really long drawn out sequences of saying like, you know, okay, this guy's, you know, he's no longer part of the sort of waking world. He's now on the outskirts observing things from this other place where time doesn't necessarily move in the exact same way that does here. And I feel like it almost punishes you at first by saying you have to slow right the fuck down and just feel this for a minute. But then once... I think the film kind of accepts the fact that you, that you get it. Yes. It then starts speeding up, you know, at an yeah. exponential rate. Yeah, and, absolutely. You know, and then we'll skip like hundreds of years in like two minutes. Yeah. And I, like I said, I just want to warn people that, I mean, if you, if you buy a ticket to something, sure, you have the option to walk out, but you're probably not going to on Netflix with this being like the shtick of this yeah. whole podcast. You have the option to stop. Please don't. It's stop. not, it's not like you're stuck in a multiplex. Yeah. Server. Although Even, I'm saying, I'm saying that two hours into our recording. So people might've turned this off. People probably turned recording. this off the first <laughs> 15 minutes. As soon as I was talking about Babylon Berlin, another, another alienating factor of this film, which we, we actually didn't mention whatsoever, uh, is the fact that the film was shot in four by three. It's a square. You know, um, it is it is like in a square aspect ratio, which can be sort of alienating to some people. I don't understand why exactly, but certain people have like really stiff parameters when it comes to movie watching. Like my father, for example, right? He doesn't like anything that's black and white. He doesn't like anything that's subtitled. He doesn't like anything that's foreign. I imagine he probably doesn't like anything that's four by three. He doesn't really like old stuff either. You know, like things from other eras or anything like that. Like it's got to be sort of like contemporary you know, in a yeah. regular aspect ratio, in color, not subtitled. Uh, so so if, if this is the kind of thing that, that really alienates you or ruffles your feathers, the film is is uh, is shot in a square aspect ratio. Yeah. Uh, so the bars will be on the yeah. sides as opposed to the top and bottom yeah. of the screen. Yeah, I mean, there are reasons to not push through, and I would just advise that. I would, I would ask that people do, because honestly, in, it's not often that I, I, I say this or feel this, but like I, I love this movie more from having talked to you about it, and I really appreciate yeah. that. And then just because I'm a sucker for format, for my MVP, I'm picking Rooney Mara just because I felt like that's one of the most honest uh, honest and raw depictions of grief that I can remember yeah. seeing. And I mean, grief is just, it's actively a part of my life right now. And so to see it done in that in that way where I was just like, you're doing it. Like you're actually you're you're in that space you're willing to put yourself through that in order to depict what it actually feels like instead of just making it seem like pretty and just like occasionally like crying on a dock somewhere sure like it's <laughs> it's real and it's really really good yeah that's one of the things that that i took away from this was that that as ridiculous and kind of absurd as the concept is that that it is probably and i've seen a lot of films in my life it is probably one of the best and most honest most direct films about grief and loss and bereavement you know i mean as as ridiculous as it may seem staring at this ghost walking around with the white sheet with eye this casper figure walking around with holes cut out of his 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 face i feel like this is one of the best films i've seen in terms of really conveying the sense of grief and loss and melancholy following you know being separated uh, from a loved one or someone that that you're very close with you know absolutely all right man well, thank you so much for bringing this, for putting it onto my radar, for giving me a reason to push through it. Um, I'm I'm very grateful for this and for this conversation. Honestly, uh, this has been one of my favorite conversations that I've had about a movie in a long time. 
which hopefully nobody listens to and feels offended by, but sure. I've, I've really, <laughs> I've really enjoyed this so much. Um, is there anywhere that people can follow you or see what you're up to? Um, yeah, I'm always up to a whole bunch of different things. Um, I, I hesitate to mention this, uh, yet because it hasn't happened yet, but I'm about, don't to apologize. Re- well, I'm about to relaunch my website, uh, uh, It's all lowercase blackroom.ca. Um, it's a bunch of photography and visual images and weird abstract erotica and strangeness and stuff. I, I hesitate to mention it now because it's probably not going to get relaunched till about May 1st. This is 2018 for anybody who's <laughs> listening to this years into the future. But, uh, but if anybody hears this podcast in the, in the immediate future and, and tries to check out the website, there's, there, there, it's, it's, cur- it's tr- currently down for maintenance, but probably, you know, by next month or so, uh, I'm going to have it revamped. So version two point, uh, V2.0 of my website, blackroom.ca, is going to hopefully be up with a whole ton of brand new photography and visual images and, and, and weirdness and stuff like that. I, I also just want to dedicate this podcast from my end anyway to my partner, Taryn, uh, because we went and saw this film together. Um, uh, the second time I saw it, I'd seen it at TIFF, as I mentioned, but I, I just thought that this was something that, that she might really like. You know, you're, it's yeah. never, you're never sure when you recommend something like this to somebody sure. if they're going to be like, what the fuck? <laughs> what is this? You know, well, but, yeah, yeah. When you yeah. put the headphones on their head, you don't, you don't know, know if they're, they're just going to walk yeah. away without saying anything. Yeah, but, but I, I, I took her to see this uh, I, at the Highland Cinema, where I, which is the cinema that I'm an occasional programmer at and host the monthly Retromania events, which usually take place on the last Friday of every month at 11 p.m., uh, but uh, yeah, we went to go see this film, and and like I said, we both just sat there, kind of like quietly weeping and kind of staring at each other longingly yeah. and stuff like that. And then and she really liked it. She really liked it a lot, and it, I think it really affected her. And then I wound up buying her uh, the film for Christmas. So I bought her a white sheet. It was yeah, just we, we just walk. That's how that's how our sex life is now. We just walk around with white sheets on, with, with uh, yeah. holes cut out of the <laughs> eyes, and just kind of like stare at each other from opposite ends of the room. <laughs> We don't actually touch or kiss or anything. We just sort of stare at each other all night. We stand up all night long. Just you kind of occasionally wave at each other. Yeah, occasionally communicate we communicate through, with subtitles. Close captioning. Yeah, but uh, but yeah. So I, I'm just gonna I'm gonna be really sappy and dedicate this podcast to her because we you know we watch this together and she you know yeah. she's probably one of the only people I've shown this film to that yeah. actually liked it. You know so well. Taryn, I know I don't know you, but I can generally feel there's a lot of love in this room right now. So I hope that you're feeling that too. All right. Well, Jeremy, again, thank you so much. I have genuinely enjoyed this. Not that I don't normally mean it, but but this conversation has been a lot to me. Thank you so much for having it. Thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure to come here and uh, and discuss cinema with you. And that's going to be it for this episode from the Netflix podcast. If you liked what you heard today, be sure to head over to netflix.ca to check out the rest of our content, like our sister podcast, Rattling the Cage, where we talk all about the movies of the one and only Nicolas Cage. As well, you can find some show notes, some articles, and reviews. If you check out the show notes for today, I've taken the opportunity to link off to some of the articles and other content that we talked about, like Nick Cave's review of Mother and Son for Independent, Uh, If you want to get an idea of what the artwork of Gregory Crudson looks like, you can check out his artsy page from there, as well as the Facebook page for Retromania at the Highland Cinema, the monthly classic movie screening event that Jeremy hosts in London, Ontario. As well, any episodes of this podcast that we made reference to are right there for you as well. Like the conversations that Jeremy and I had about Christine, San Junipero, Jaws, as well as a bonus episode about film projection and the Retromania event. 
And lastly, I've linked off to episode 53, where Caroline Deason and I talked about the girl with the dragon tattoo. You can follow this podcast on a few social media platforms if you'd like. You can find us on Facebook as Netflix, on Twitter at NetflixPod, and we're on SoundCloud and Instagram at NetflixPodcast. If you'd like to follow me, you can find me on Twitter, Letterboxd, and Instagram at Dylan Clark Moore. If you'd like to support the show, you can head over to iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or whichever podcast platform you use and subscribe so that each episode comes straight to you. That also helps us raise our cachet in the stock market of podcasts. If you'd like, you can also contribute directly to this podcast by way of a monthly subscription through Patreon. So for as little as $1 a month, you can keep the wheels on this damn thing. This podcast is produced and edited by yours truly, and the theme music was provided by Zach Moore. Thank you again to Shiloh Polly for providing that fantastic cover of I Get Overwhelmed by Dark Rooms. And thank you, listeners, for checking out this episode of the Netflix podcast, and be sure to join me here next time for a whole new conversation about a whole new movie from the Netflix catalog. Because even if you think you've seen it all, you ain't streamed to nothing yet.